Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July 24, 2015. This is episode 1611 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. It is time for the Monster Show of the Week, the Expert Council Questions and Answers Show. This is where you send me emails with TSP Expert in the subject line. Tell me who your question's for, and then give me your question. I'll get it on to the Expert Council member that's appropriate for it, and hopefully you'll hear it on a Friday show like this. Uh, some of the guys get tons of questions. Some of the guys get a couple. Uh, so depending on who you pick, you'll will you know make your frequency of whether you get on the show or not a little bit different. But uh, pretty much, if you send a call in for the expert council right now, in a few weeks you're going to hear it on the air. As long as it's a question that we can use for the show, very few of them are questions we can't use for the show. Occasionally, I get one that's just like that doesn't work. Uh, but 99% of the time, they're great questions. So get them on in. Remember, make your question in one to two sentences maximum. Then give details after you hit the return key a couple times. That'll make it get through my screening process a lot better. Um, with that, I do want to let you know I do have um, all but two of the expert council members on the air today for you. I decided to take two call-in questions for me and add them to the show so we do have a, a full dugout, so to speak, with me pinch-hitting for two of our expert council members that I will jokingly refer to this week as pikers. Yes, they're pikers. They're not really pikers. One's kind of a piker with getting his answers, and the other is one of the most reliable we have. But who are the pikers? You will know by their absence this week. Seriously, uh, the only reason I even brought that up is I've been I've been rousing one of the guys with the term just to mess with him because he's a friend, and uh, it also made me think of the movie that I know the term from. So I've got a little impromptu uh, question and answer contest for you. The first person to email me with Piker in the subject line and tell me what movie made that term famous. That is also a movie that is a cult classic among salespeople. Well, I will give you a free year of MSB, and if you're already a lifetime member or just want to do something like this, you can give it away to somebody else if you want to. First person, one winner only. If this show's been out for more than an hour, don't bother. I guarantee you by then somebody will have won. If you're sending this in like next week or something, it's not going to happen. But what movie that is a cult classic among salespeople made the term piker so well known to those that know the word anyway and what it's all about. Anyway, with that, before I get into your Q&A stuff, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning-fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order... I go on about my day and I hear, gee, who's that? It's the postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us to think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. That's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, get on over to Bulk Ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon 
You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training. But even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just take the benefits section of your MSB for more information on that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them over at sawtac.com. You'll get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle if you get on over to Sawtac. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains, That's why they call them SawTac, and when I say everything, I mean everything from the awesome manly titanium spork, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, and everything else you can think of. If it's tactical, they have it at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember the website again, www.sawtac.com, and they also do do a discount for members of the support brigade. So if you're a member and you're going to get some tactical material from SawTac, get into your MSB account, click on benefits, and look up SawTac and get that discount. Again, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the sawtooth wilderness of Idaho, sawtac.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1611. What happened in 1611? I got two for you today from the awesome Alex Shrugged. One is the King James Bible is published, and the other is one of the greatest of the great becomes king. Not of England, by the way, uh, but Sweden. And that's the one I'm going to read for you today. But it is kind of interesting to note that something as monumentous as the King James Bible being published happened in 1611, uh, and that did happen this year. There's a pretty good piece on it from Alex Shrug. But let me read it. One of the greatest of the great becomes king. The Swedish Empire starts today. Gustavus Adolphus is one of the greatest military strategists of all time, and that man has just become the king of Sweden. If you'll recall, Sweden broke away from the Kalmar Union when the king of Denmark dealt unethically with the Swedish rebel leaders during a truce and killed them all. One of the sons of those rebel leaders becomes the king of Sweden, and from generation to generation, the crown has finally come to King Gustav. He will be competent, and he will know how to wield power especially military power. He is best known for the strategy of combined arms where two more types of combat arms are used together so that your enemy tries to defend itself against one attack and is left vulnerable to the other attack. For example, if you are being if you are beating the heck out of your opponent with cannon fire, you mount a cavalry charge, which can be a little hard on the cavalry unless you do it right, and King Gustav can do it right. My take by Alex Shrug, King Gustav is going to do a lot of things right, because we are getting close to the kickoff of the Thirty Years' War. I'm sorry, King Gustav is going to have to do a lot of things right, because we're getting kick close to the kickoff of the Thirty Years' War, where eight million people are going to die in various horrible ways. Civilians are not exempt. The King of Sweden is going to figure heavily in how the war turns out. If King Gustav had lived longer, we'd be speaking Swedish right now. Europe would look a whole lot different than it does today, and we'd be drinking pale beer with unpronounceable names. I became interested in King Gustav after reading a science fiction novel entitled 1632 by Eric Flint, in which the king is one of the main characters. The story is about an entire West Virginia coal mining town that is suddenly sent back in time to 1632 and dropped into the German countryside during the Thirty Years' War. It was funny as heck, and the king becomes a hero in the book, 
So I'm pretty much pro-Gustav at this time. Um, so that's actually my take by Jack Speaker. The last little sentence there. Alex is pro-Gustav because he read a book that he knows is fiction about a king that was really good at war during the 1600s. Now, I actually know that Alex is an incredible historian. And he's probably pro-Gustav for more reasons than that. And there's probably a little bit of tongue-in-cheek in there. But... Actually, that brings up a really valid point for a lot of other people. So I don't want anybody to think I'm picking on Alex with this. But what that makes me think of, and this is why we do the history segment, how long does it take for a person to believe something, whether it's true or not, for it to become an article of faith? Think about that again. How long does it take for a person to believe something to be true? before it becomes an article of faith. In other words, if we're discussing something you never heard of before, in your life today, for the very first time, and you become convinced that A is true, whatever it is, and then tomorrow someone says A is not true, B is true, and makes a very compelling case for why A is wrong and B is true. It's not difficult at all. If the argument is logical and cogent and convincing for you to say, you know what, A wasn't true. I was misled. I was deceived. I'll let go of A and I'll embrace B as a new reality until such time as something changes it. But what if you've believed A for 20 years? How much harder is it? for you to be convinced that A is not true. Even if A wasn't prominent in your life, you didn't really think about it, just if anybody had asked you over the 20 years, is A true? You said, oh yeah, everybody knows that. And then somebody comes to you with a logical, cogent, information-backed, fact-backed argument, you will find it much more difficult to let go of something because the longer we believe something, the more it moves from knowledge that we have to faith that we believe in. And it's very important when we're dealing with rational, everyday things that we don't let faith get in the way of fact. I don't think that's anti-religious at all, by the way, because I'm not talking about religious faith here. We can go down that road if we want to, but I don't really want to go down that road with you. I'm saying there are so many things that we've placed faith in that are not necessarily true today. Like, the people of this nation are the freest people in the world, or the freest that people have ever been. Is that true? I'll leave that for you to decide. Just make sure you're making your decision based on fact, not faith. Leave faith in the realm of religion and everywhere else. Look for things to be proven with fact. And be careful what you move from the realm of factual belief to faith in a belief. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, remind you guys real quick about the Member Support Brigade. If you have faith that this show is going to be around, you can back it with fact, because we've been here eight years now. When something's been around eight years, it's probably not going anywhere anytime soon. That's the truth with the Survival Podcast. But the way we're able to do that is with your support by becoming a member of our Support Brigade. It is the number one way that we pay the bills around here. In fact, when you look at our sponsorship program, I've had the same sponsors, most of them, for over five years now, and I have never raised their rates. 
uh, maybe I think one time in the history of the show, I raised the rates for sponsors and it wasn't much. I keep my sponsorship rates like stupid low for the amount of exposure those guys get because they were there with me in the beginning and because I have put my faith based on fact, in the fact that this audience will continue to support the show. That's what you guys have always done, and I believe that because the facts are you save a bunch of money when you become a member if you're buying stuff in the self-sufficiency, self-reliance, homesteading, permaculture world. Many of the discounts in there will pay for the entire membership for a year in and of themselves. There's over 60 different vendors that give you discounts now. You can learn more at the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members to learn more. And if you are a Remember, you've never really dug around in there. Dig around in there. The benefits page shows you all the discounts. Most people go straight to that. There's a whole bunch of videos for download, publications for download. Every episode of the show ever done is in uh, zip files available for download. There is so much in the members brigade. Uh, so not just you know, call for new members today, but existing members. If you've never really dug around your your uh, your your back office, go ahead and do that. I think it'll shock you. Like there's probably two hundred dollars worth of free ebooks alone. Just in free ebooks available to you. There's some stuff that's public domain stuff that you probably would never find on your own. Videos that I did very early on. There's a lot of great stuff in the MSB. So make sure you check that out while you have time. Okay. Next up, let's go ahead and get into uh, your calls and your questions for the expert council. Remember, calls for me. Send your questions by email for the council. That formula is working much better. TSP expert in the subject line. Question, details to follow the question. Question short, brief, and to the point. One to two sentences maximum. Same thing for the phone calls for me that usually are going to be Thursday shows from now on. We're going to go ahead and start off today with two calls for me. The rest will be expert counsel questions, and we're going to have a great show today, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, Jeff. This is Rob from Central Wisconsin, and I was calling in. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on the Iran deal and what we've been doing with that. Everything's been going pretty crazy on the news and other podcasts I've been listening to and being a trucker. i got a lot of time to listen. And uh, I'm just over here thinking, you know, we've got far more dangerous people to deal with that already have nuclear capabilities. I mean, if Iran wants to build a couple of power reactors and we're going to get a bunch of cheap oil for it, let them have it. But personal opinion, so I'd love to hear yours. Thanks, and thanks for everything you do. Bye. Uh, I'm going to tell you what nobody will tell you. On either side of the aisle about the Iran deal, um, it's meaningless. It, it's it's not the big deal that everybody's making it out to be. It's probably a good deal for the average Iranian citizen whose quality of life, from a standpoint of access to certain things, may get better now. And notice the couch there with the word may. We'll see, okay? Here's the deal. Here's what the deal is. Iran will be allowed to continue its attempt to create nuclear reactors for the purpose of producing energy. That's the story Iran tells anyway. In return, the West will be permitted to have inspections, which are meaningless. Um, and in return, Iran will have its sanctions lifted. We will stop sanctioning them. Okay. Um, if you are in opposition to the president or stand in direct opposition to Iran for ideological reasons, you want to make a huge deal about this because, oh my God, Iran is going to become Hitler and take over the world. 
And if you are on the left and you believe that you want to support anything Barack Obama does, whether it's stupid or not, you want to make this a monumentous achievement, it's unbelievable. Look, we've opened up yet another dialogue with a former enemy, and this leads to the... Okay, here's the truth. This is what the TV will never tell you. The sanctions never did anything at all to prevent Iran as a state from doing what it wanted to do. It never slowed down anything. It never had any effect. Yes, some of its regular everyday citizenry have suffered because of it, but the state of Iran never gave a shit about the suffering of its people, just like the state of the United States doesn't really care that much if you're not doing well. As long as you shut up and do your job and follow the rules, they don't really care. That's that's the reality. Iran has pursued its nuclear ambitions in spite of sanctions. Has never given a shit about these sanctions, though it would prefer that they be lifted because it might make controlling their subjects a little bit easier. If you're comfortable as a slave, you're a little bit happier as a slave. Got it? Okay. So. It's it, it, the, the the critics of the deal will say, oh my God, they're just going to go out and do everything now. And they're going to have so much more money because the sanctions are lifted. We've been buying their oil nonstop. We've never refused to buy a drop of Iranian oil. Never refused to buy a drop of their oil. They have sold oil every single day during the sanction period, nonstop. They're not going to sell any more oil or any less oil than the market will allow them to, and the sanctions never did the square root of F all to change that. They were much more about what they could get. So it was much more a punishment of the people that we claim to want freedom for than it ever was a punishment of the government, the state itself. So... The Iranian nuclear ambitions will continue unabated, unabated, but they already have been. Okay? Inspectors will come in and check what they're doing. And gee, gee, you don't think Iran's a big enough country that they just might not have a few places where the inspectors aren't allowed to go, don't even know to look, and that's where some of the research that we really would like to know about's going on? Come on. Really? Okay. So... That will be one of the things the critics of the deal will say. Well, that's exactly the point. They'll have these other, they'll never be able to. They have those now, but they'll have more money. They have more money than anybody in the Middle East now, other than Saudi. They have, money is not their problem. Okay, so in the end, do I think these are good guys? No. Do I want to hang out with them, play canasta? No. Are they, are they, they psychopaths? The, the people running around today? I think if you'll beat somebody because they show too much ankle in their hajib, yeah, you're a psychopath, right? I think the entire way that this, this primitive form of Islam runs in the Middle East is psychopathic. It really is. It is a sickness, in my view. I really, really feel that way. And I'll tell you what, I don't care who it offends. I know I have people that listen to this show that are of the Muslim faith. I have no issues with you or your faith. But... If we are going to stone people to death for adultery or because they're gay or something like that, which happens in Iran, that's a psychopathic, murderous regime. And guess what? We cozy right up to another one called Saudi Arabia that does the same shit, just as bad. They just have a different brand on their form of primitive Islam. 
Okay? So they are nuts, least anybody think I'm saying anything less. What I'm saying is they are a sovereign state. They have the, the borders of a sovereign state, and we've never had any control of what they do inside their borders ever. And any belief that we ever have is nothing but an illusion. And this deal is largely meaningless. No matter if you're afraid of Iran or you're pro-Iran, this deal is largely meaningless. People that run Iran have pretty much said the sanctions never had any real effect on what we've done. But this allows us to engage with the rest of the world on other things. That's why we wanted it. That's why we wanted them. We wanted our people to be a little bit happier in the oppression that they live in, so they'll let us continue to oppress them. We want to be able to engage with the rest of the world in commerce. And whether we do that or not, we're going to keep doing what we're doing over here, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's the truth. So what should you do? Go on with your life. Go on with your life. But they're going to be an EMP attack. Oh, God. Just... I, 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 the people that want to go there, I just, you know what? It makes great books. It makes great books. It does. But it, it doesn't make much of a reality. Let me go ahead and take one more before I turn things over to the expert council today. Hi, Jack. This is DH from Colorado's Western Slope. My question to you is how do you see the future of cryptocurrency in terms of the security aspects, especially as compared to the modern? financial systems of wire transfer, credit cards, ACH, etc. Background, I do a lot of traveling and have had, unfortunately, quite a few fraud events in the last those six months where I've had to have bank account numbers reissued, I've had to have credit cards reissued, as a lot of people have with uh, stolen credit card numbers from Home Depot, Target, elsewhere. And it seems to me that the security model of Bitcoin seems to be a lot better that I can only push money to someone else, I can never actually take money from someone else's account. Now, obviously, this creates an additional issue of refunds, escrows, returns, re, you know, sending money back, basically. Um, but I think that could be easily taken care of in the private space with, you know, escrow services that function the same way they do now, like if you were to buy something uh, from China through Alibaba or something like that. So my question to you again, uh, how do you rate the security of modern cryptocurrencies versus traditional institutions? Thanks, Jack. Bye. Um, there is no doubt that cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin and, and clones thereof, have the ability for greater security than any other type of financial instrument in the world currently has. There's actually no reason that any of the really great things about uh, cryptocurrency security could not be applied to financial institutions using dollars or, or euros or yen or pounds or, or drachma or whatever, okay? Yes, the drachma may return someday, who knows? Um, but there is, there's no reason that most of what I'm going to tell you couldn't be done in our banking system. In fact, there is a, a credit card out right now that I've seen advertisements for. I think it's from Chase. I'm not sure. That has basically an on-off switch, right? So this could be done with a bank account, a debit card, with anything from your phone. It's like they're paying attention to what cryptocurrencies are doing to a little bit. It's this commercial where you see this girl like leaves her credit card at a bar where she's out partying and clubbing and whatever. And on the way to their car, she realizes she left her card. So she pulls up her phone and she shuts off the credit card. Basically, it won't work now. 
goes back and finds it. It's like a freeze frame thing. It's kind of a gimmicky crap that's like, you know, down to the fifth grade level, which is where they advertise now. Goes back and gets her card, sees some dude that's like, hey, you're back, and freezes him and whatever. But the point is that she can shut the card off. As soon as she can, now, okay, well, the card shut off. It's like calling and saying, I want my card canceled. No, it just won't work. And as soon as she gets her card back, she flips the thing back on, and all of a sudden all the music starts up again, and the card works again. That's actually a really great security feature. And that doesn't have to just pertain to credit cards. And I'll tell you why I think that comes straight out of Bitcoin here in a second when I explain how you know my Bitcoin account at Coinbase works for me. So that's the kind of uh, new features that I think we need to provide better security. I mean, when I saw that, I was like, well, if I had that credit card, I would just shut it off. And I would just leave it off so that I had to turn it on to use it. So I'd have like a phone verification. Oh, wait, how does that work? So uh, to kind of check on some things and make sure I, things hadn't changed uh, since the last time I checked, I decided to log into my Coinbase account today, see how my Bitcoin's doing, and make sure my Bitcoins are where they belong. And I did. And when I logged in, um, two things happened. One, because I put in a new router since then, the Bitcoin system thought that I was on a computer I've never used to access the account before. So it sent me an email. I had to click that link just to log into my own account with the right credentials, okay, because I used a different machine. Now, most of your bank software doesn't do that, but it could. It could. Now, here's another thing. There's an app that works with Coinbase called Authy. The way Authy works is when I logged in, before I even saw that happen, my phone goes beep, 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 right? Okay, I got a text message. No, I got an Authy message, an Authy push message. I take my phone. I Now I have to be able to open my phone. I have to have a password for my phone or a fingerprint. So even if you have my phone, if you can't get my now, now the phone has to be opened to see what the Authy message is. Authy sends me a code, a security token. It lasts for 30 seconds. I have to enter that security token. So I log in, I get the security token, I enter the security token, and it'll let me into my account. Okay? That's just to get into my account. It's a pain in the ass. Hey, it's safe. Okay, now, when I went to get in, then it said, hey, we don't recognize your computer. My bank, when, my, when I log into my bank, it's, it might ask me a security question, like who was your, you know, your, your, your favorite pet as a kid or something like that, and do you use this computer often? It knows too. But this sent me an email. I had to click the link so I'd have access to my email account. Then when I get into my account, I have two little places I hold Bitcoins. One's like my general account. I can, I can buy something from you today with that account. If you buy something from me, it goes straight into that. That's my general Bitcoin account. I keep a little bit of Bitcoin there. The majority of my Bitcoin I keep in a different area. Think of it like checking and savings, so there's no interest rate. The savings side is what's called a vault. This is how the vault works. I set it up with two email verifications and an authy text. So I take and I put, let's say today I decide I want to put two Bitcoins into a vault. I put them into the vault. They sit in there. Easy to get them in. Get them out's different. I go, I want to pull these two Bitcoins back out. The first thing that happens is I get a little authy push message. I have to use a security token and tell the system, yes, I am me. I really do want this to happen. Here's a security token. Then two emails go to two separate email addresses. I have to be able to click a link in both of those email addresses. And then it takes 48 hours for my Bitcoin to come out of the vault, which is basically an offline storage uh, type implement, 
back into the, 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 the blockchain area where it can now be used. During that 48 hours, I'm sent an email reminding me about halfway through, hey, did you really want to do this? Okay? If I did, I'd let it happen. If not, anytime in that 48 hours, I can cancel it, and the money stays in the vault. How are you going to get that? You, you, need, you need my cell phone. You need access to two email accounts, two separate email accounts, okay? Um, and you need access, first of all, into my uh, Coinbase account. So you have, to ax you have to hack four different things, and you have to successfully do it for 48 hours without my knowledge before you can even get to the ability to send the money somewhere. Now, I, I don't know of any financial account that works that way. But why couldn't it? it? It absolutely could work that way. That's that's what I think we need to be honest about. Like that's not features because it's cryptocurrency. Um, that's features that were made because of fears of the risks of cryptocurrency. So the I think the financial institutions of the world will do more things like this. This you know turn it off credit card type feature where you can just say you know I, I don't want this credit card to. Uh, To, to, to happen anymore. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to, to not function. I, I don't see any reason you couldn't set up a bank account where you use your debit card like a credit card, but Visa and MasterCard merchants, that type of thing, where when you go to use it, you basically say, activate for the next five minutes, hand the clerk your card, they run the charge, and it shuts off, and it will only operate when you want it to. Or they slide your car while it's waiting authorization. Did you approve this? Yes or no? Yes. Um, that would just almost completely destroy. Think about this. That would almost destroy credit card fraud tomorrow if we had that type of a feature. Now, it would be a problem for things like auto billing and stuff like that. But you could have another feature that authorizes auto billing for a, you know, a certain day of the month up to a certain amount. So that only that particular institution could charge you. There, there's ways to make our money more secure if we want to do it. The financial institutions have been more interested in, you know, skimming money, stealing money through monetary creation and control than they have in protecting our money. What the bank wants to tell you, as long as our money's safe, it's your money is our money, so your money's safe. So their security is all about protecting the, the totality of the money. Where with cryptocurrencies, it's personalized to where you can set up levels of protection for your own wealth. The other thing that makes cryptocurrency much more secure, using that word a little differently, is things like I can create an off-network uh, wallet. Basically a mnemonic device, like the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog, something like that. You won't forget. In my head. And I can move Bitcoin into this offline world. And... I can then move it back online by entering that mnemonic device at any time along with this paper wallet type thing, and I can get the money back, which means I can literally basically disintegrate my money. It doesn't exist except in my head. And I can, I can get on a plane and get off in Tokyo, and my money is available to me by entering that mnemonic device. Um, so how are you going to seize that from me? If you're the government or organized crime or some type of extortionist or whatever, how, how can you get that information from me other than waterboarding me? And at the point you're waterboarding me, I probably won't be able to remember it because I'll be stressed out. You can't get it. That's why the government hates it. It's not security from fraud that they hate. It's security from them that they don't like. So 
the financial institutions have to balance this level of personal security without making the money secure against the government, but making the secure the, the money secure against all the other criminals. So they, 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 because they are the government, the financial institutions are the government. They own the government, so they don't want to make your money secure against themselves. Where cryptocurrency, yeah, you know what? We made it for ourselves, so we'll make it secure against you. The biggest weakness to cryptocurrency is stability. Um, when we started Permethos, one of the partners really wanted us to take Bitcoin. I'm like, I can't do that with money that we're promising to invest in this, this company to go forward with because it could drop by 20% tomorrow. It's irresponsible to hold a large amount of money, you know, especially for a business in Bitcoin right now because of the volatility. A lot of that's gone away. Ever since like Bitcoin fell out of the media limelight, it's been in this really steady, very slow growth curve. Growth, yeah, getting worth more and more and more, but very, very small amounts. It has peaks and valleys, but if you look at the overall trend, it's this really slow trend over the last year. Slow growth up, very, very stable. Kind of looks like the reverse of inflation in a way. So the less hype around Bitcoin, and the more it's just used as what it is by people that understand it, the more stable it becomes. If it becomes stable enough to hold value or slightly gain in value, and right now, if you held Bitcoin for the last year, you're ahead of a savings account, okay? No matter how you held it, whether it's in readily accessible or in a vault. So right now, Bitcoin is better than the banks in every way possible, except it could be torpedoed intentionally with speculation, bad press, etc., to destabilize its value. That affects the, enti the, the entirety of Bitcoin holders. But for the individual, as long as the value stable, it is bulletproof. You can't get it if I use the full suite of security that's available to me. And all the tricks in the books, like taking it offline to an offline wallet. Right? So that's, that's beyond the vault in Coinbase. The vault in Coinbase is for convenience. But if I really want to, I can basically take that Bitcoin out of the blockchain. It's gone. It gets recreated with the proper sequence of entry. Come get it. So it is a better technology, but the question is how much of that technology will the banksters now co-opt and make their own as they seek to get rid of cash, because that's their goal. So for them, Bitcoin was this big arrow in the heart at first, but now they see it as the blueprint for their own cashless society, which is something they've wanted for 100 years. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, take first question now for an expert council member. This one here is for Michael Jordan. It comes from Eric. He says, A hive of bees has set up a hive in a tree by my front door. How can I relocate them into a hive box of mine? Details. This is a hive in a hole of a tree, not a swarm on a branch. I have all the bee gear necessary to handle my hives. The hive is about 10 feet off the ground. It's a really strong wild hive I've caught two swarms from so far. You might think, why not just leave them in a tree and keep catching the swarms? He continues, it's just now becoming an issue because some workers refuse to come to the property with the bees in their present location. I have looked into smoking them out, creating a bee vacuum device, creating some way to entice creating some one-way entrance contraption, etc. I would like to keep the hive as intact as possible, hopefully preserving the queen genetics if at all possible. I can also send a picture if need be. Thanks for everything, Eric. So, Michael, what do we do about bees in a tree that ain't hanging on a branch? 
Hey, Jack. Thanks for not getting eaten by that big shark you landed and getting back to us with some great information again. So Eric has a colony of bees living in a tree that has become an issue. It's a common problem. Everybody has this problem. Anybody that's tried to move bees, it's always in the tree, and how do we do it? We want them out of the tree, and cutting down the tree and killing it is not an option, and we don't want to hurt the bees. So Eric has uh, some good background on bees. Uh, He's talked about bee vacuums, one-way entrance uh, entrance, uh, doors, and he's ready to try something. Man, Eric, you stated that you've already gotten a few swarms from the bee tree. A bee tree is one that makes colonies of bees. That there's a colony of bees in there and it just makes more of them. And did I say free swarms? So go for the genetic line of the bees and make more swarms. So I'm not sure how long you've had the tree or your time frame to get rid of the bees. But boy, I would profitize on the good bees. I would tell people it takes about three years for the bees to get out of there naturally. I'd put up six swarm traps and I'd put up three to four hummingbird feeders full of a good 50-50 sugar mix and feed the hell out of the bees. Uh, I'd get them so they'd swarm over the next three years and I'd catch 9 to 15 swarms out of that tree uh, getting uh, something out of there before you might have to do something really drastic and kill the bees. Uh, I think that's the best way to save that genetic line. If they're that good and they've been there, that's the way that I'd save them is I'd produce them to make them swarm more and capture those swarms for that genetic line. But okay, we're going to go ahead and push the bees out because we have to. So I would pound some uh, double-headed nails around the hole, uh, leaving them so they'd be about an inch out, uh, protruding around the hole. And, I, you know, you need to get about five nails or more uh, around it. And then I would get a piece of two-inch PVC coupling, and I would uh, drill so that some screws stick out of it at about a half inch to an inch, but don't drill all the way through the coupling, but just drill into it so it has the screws all sticking around it. And I would set the PVC coupling over the hole, and I would use clay, and I'd pack clay around it and actually anchor the PVC coupling to the bee tree. And that way you can control the bees now that you have this PVC coupling protruding from the tree, and the bees are coming out of the coupling. Now you can control the bees a little bit more. Um, If you want to run uh, a two-inch hose and glue that into that PVC coupling, you can wrap that up around the tree at an angle and move the bees so they actually fly higher and out of the way of people's traffic and path. That's one good way to do that is make that pipe higher in the air. So if you have like 12 foot of hose, kind of get it at an angle so it comes out of the tree so the bees can walk up the tubing and fly out. Uh, if they're 10 feet in the air and you're adding 12 feet, you know, you're looking at it 25 feet in the air and they should be out of everybody's flight path. Um, but you can also take this uh, PVC uh, coupling, hook your hose onto it and with five foot of pipe, get yourself a, a box, hang it in the air and get your one-way door in there. And then what you're going to do is run the one-way door so when the bees are coming out of the tree, they're going through the pipe, through the beehive, and out. When they come in, they can't go back through the pipe. They're trapped in the beehive. Once you get that established, um, you're going to go ahead and you're going to get some stuff called burotic anhydride. 
Uh, it's uh, what beekeepers call bee go, or uh, Man Lake calls it honey robber. And it's a little chemical that you're going to put on some fabric or a fume board. And uh, what you're going to do is you're going to drill like a three-inch hole either above or below the entranceway. I, I, you know, without photos, I can't tell you where. But if the comb is, uh, if the entrance is uh, lower than you think, then all the comb is hanging. You want to push the bees down the comb and out the hole so the hole will be above the comb. If the hole is above the comb and the comb's hanging down, you want to drill down below the hole so that way the bees are pushed up and out the hole. Hopefully that kind of makes sense, but you're just going to drill a three-inch hole, stuff this rag in it with uh, buratic anhydride, uh, the bee gone, or a honey robber. And you're just going to put a couple drops, you know, I'd say like three or four teaspoons on that rag, stuff it in that three-inch hole, and uh, I would say in two to three days that all the bees will be pushed out and into your box. Um, do not make that tube over five or five foot long, or the queen will never move out. But I would try to make lots of swarm populations before somebody tells you you got to get rid of rid of them. And then I would do this uh, swarm trap, make a bee trap where you're moving the bees out with the fume board and get them out of there. Uh, never use smoke, um, man. You may burn your place down. You may burn down the tree. Smoke has all kinds of hazards. We want to be safe, right? So if you're doing anything, make sure you tie your ladders to the tree. Make sure your scaffolding's on flat, firm ground. Wear your bee veil and gloves. Uh, yes, sometimes I get away with it, but it's always ready to be safe for you and the bees. Remember to put a little lemongrass oil in the new hive that you're working from to get them accumulated and to draw the queen in. And I would really try to get more swarms, man. If you can uh, make the bees come out higher with the tubing out of the tree, you know, so people really are, it's not coming in and out of their path and they're higher. Maybe you can get away with it a little bit longer. Uh, you said it's in by your front door and stuff. I don't, uh, you know, I don't know how long it's been there. If it's been there for like already two years and this will be your third year, you could probably get those bees to come out for about three more years and that's a six year queening span in that, in that colony, which would be really good. Um, so take your time, go with a three-year plan, and if not, you know, like I said, uh, get your nails in the tree, get your coupling set, run your hose out to your trap, and uh, get the fume board going and push them out. Uh, see if you can get them out of there that way. I'm going to let you know that uh, getting bees out this way is hard to do. Swarms are easy to catch, man. They're good, quick. Knock them down, put them in a box, haul ass. But uh, these are called cutouts, and cutouts are not easy, and that's why they're called cutouts, because most of the time you're just cutting out the brood and putting them in a nuke or putting them in what we call a hard populate dry hive and trying to make them build harder. Uh, killing the queens happens a lot during these type of removals, and if you get any honey in your bee vac, the bees are done. Right? They're going to be all sticky, and the vacuum is going to power them down into the bottom of the hive, and it's going to kill them. So take your time. Really observe and see what you have going on. And uh, send me some photos, man. Uh, Facebook. Hit me up on Facebook. Uh, AB Friendly Company. A-B-E-E Friendly Company. All one word. Gmail.com. Uh, dot com. At Facebook. 
think that's your best way to send me those pictures. Try to try to show me where the location is because if it's in the base trunk of a tree, ten feet in the air, I would just put the clay and um, get the anchoring in with the nails and try to go for it. Uh, this is Michael Jordan with AB Friendly Company. Hopefully that you guys are doing some great beekeeping this summer. And I hope that uh, I hear some and get some good photos from you guys. Thanks a lot, Jack. And I hope you guys are having a good time. Great stuff as always from uh, Michael Jordan, a.k.a. the Bee Whisperer. Next question is for Stephen Harris. This is from Jeff in Massachusetts. He says, I have a single deep cycle battery in my apartment that I plan to use to power a 400-watt inverter for small applications during short-term power outage. I normally charge it with a plug-in charger, which is obviously not an option for this case. I don't have a true generator, just a Harris-approved 800-watt Cobra inverter and extension cord, all tested and they work. I considered trying to charge it off of my Honda Civic's battery with the engine running, but read conflicting views on that idea online. Some say it could damage the alternator. I don't have the funds for a quality generator at this time, so I'm hoping to find a way to recharge the battery if necessary. Thank you, Jeff in Massachusetts. I think I know exactly what he's going to say, but I won't speak for him. Here's the man himself, Stephen Electric Avenue Harris. South in Massachusetts, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question on the expert panel. First, I really want to say congratulations to you on making a battery bank. Even if it's one deep cycle battery in your apartment with a 120 watt inverter on it, you are now miles ahead of all of the helpless people out there that will be in the dark with dead cell phones during the next disaster. You did it. Congratulations on your start. Only a small percentage of people that listen to us actually do the things that we suggest. Many people call it prepper porn. And you are one of them, and I want to encourage all of you out there listening that just like Jeff did it, you can do it too, and it can be as easy as one marine battery. One marine battery from Walmart uh, for less than 100 bucks will be put you miles ahead of everyone else. Now, the best way to recharge it is to don't deplete it. Remember, it's not a lightsaber. It's a battery bank, and it powers small things. Battery banks power 3-watt LED lights from your 120-watt inverter, your AM, FM radio, your scanner, your 7-inch LCD TV. It recharges your AA batteries. It does not power your refrigerator. It does not power your freezer. It does not power your coffee maker. If you want coffee, get a French press mug from uh, Jack's shop and get a little propane burner. You can make all the coffee you want and not use electricity. Now, your next best option, I would say, to not running out and to recharging is just to buy a second battery uh, for the battery bank and double its size. That's a $100 option. And that might give you more than enough needed power for, say, three to seven days of lights and AA batteries and radios, etc. 
during a short-term power outage. That's an option for you. Now, you're in an apartment, so this is not an option for you, but those of you who live where you can store a small generator, don't forget, you can get a small two-cycle generator between 700 and 1,000 watts for about $100 to $150. Uh, I have one listed at the very bottom of prep1234.com, so you can look at it. Harbor Freight is a great option for these, especially when on sale, sometimes as cheap as 89 bucks. Uh, this is not my favorite generator. This is not my favorite option, but it is an option that does work, especially if you want to power your refrigerator or freezer for two to four hours a day, which is all they need. This is, is this as good as a $1,200 Honda EU2000i? No, not by any means. Will it work for $500? Yes. Now, regarding your car and it hurting the alternator, uh, first, your car is just fine. You can put an inverter on your car and you can run the extension cord into your house you can power up some bigger things off of the inverter on your car at idle. Uh, so you might even be able to put some power into your refrigerator or your freezer one at a time if you have to. Uh, you won't be able to power your microwave. But there are other things in your house you might be able to you know, power that are larger power loads. And then you can also recharge your marine battery. So... You might run your car for a few hours a day, an hour or two in the morning, an hour or two in the evening, and then at night you're running off of your battery inside your house. Now, this hurting the alternator thing is a pet peeve of mine. I'm going to be nasty for two seconds. In this regards to everyone reading stuff out there on, on the Internet. There are people out there who have done absolutely nothing with their life, and they will do nothing with their life. And do you know what their number one goal is? To get you to do nothing with your life either. So when you ask a question like, can I power my apartment off my inverter, off my car? They'll say, no, you'll hurt your alternator. And they don't have a clue of how to even spell an alternator, where it is or how it works, what the internal wiring is, how durable they are, or anything. They will just squawk like a parrot and repeat something they've heard from some other idiot, or they will bring up every fear, both real and imagined, to get you to do something, not to, to not do something. So if I tell you, you know, don't do it, and it's in the field of electricity or chemistry, don't do it. If I tell you don't do something in permaculture, don't listen to me. I'm not a permaculture person. If Jack tells you, listen to him. So when you are getting advice from people, keep in mind who it's coming from. Have they done anything in their life? Will they do anything in their life? Or does it just sound like they're trying to get you to do nothing in your life? If I wanted to buy New York real estate and Donald Trump told me don't do it, I would listen to him. Now, as I said, your best way is to power your recharge your batteries off your car. This will give you two as one, one as none. You can power your stuff from the car while charging your inside battery. You got one inverter for the car. You got one inverter inside the house. Even if it's a 150-watt inverter inside the house, that's all you need. Your 800-watt inverter underneath the car hood is plenty to run in to charge your battery. You are on the right track, and you are just going to do fine. Uh, with that said, I think I have answered your question. Hey, um, I got a new wood gas stove coming out, and you should hear about it from me next Friday. 
It's 12 ounces, portable, and it's a gasifying stove. It folds down into nothing, and I think a lot of you will like it. So this is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel, reminding you that you can listen to everything Jack and I have done, along with a bunch of true stories and testimonials from people who have actually done stuff that Jack and I have recommended. You can get all of this at Stephen1234.com. Thank you, guys. I'll talk to you next week. Hope some of you guys enjoyed the little 80s music throwback there as an introduction for Stephen Harris. I try to throw little pop culture things in like that once in a while just to have some fun. That is the survival podcast, but if you ain't having fun living life and thriving, what the hell are you surviving for? Great answer as always from Mr. Harris. I have a completely different type of question now. Next question is for Darby Simpson. This is a question for me for Darby. Uh, Darby's one of the guys I could use more questions for. If you want to ask Darby a question, uh, I will give it priority because I don't get enough questions for Darby. Darby, of course, is a uh, third-generation, I think, farmer. If I got that wrong, I'm sorry, but he's been a farmer. His family, his dad was a farmer. His granddad was a farmer, at least, so it's been at least that far. But he kind of left the farm and eventually kind of came back around to it and now is a full-time farmer again, spent some time as an engineer in the professional world. Seems to be a bit happier today uh, as a farmer. But that has me thinking, because I know so many of you guys are trying to break into some level of making a living with agriculture of some sort, you know, what's it like to get started? So my question for Darby today is, can you discuss the importance of new farmers focusing on one or two things and doing them well to the point of paying the bills before trying to do more? Making allowances for doing things like planting trees for long-term gains. Do you agree that a new farmer would do well to pick one or two things where the math says it will pay the bills and do just that until they develop a market with it. Is that pretty much what you did? Can you talk about your first two years in business along these lines? Darby would say, sir. Jack, I agree wholeheartedly that focusing on one or two enterprises initially and making those profitable is of the utmost importance uh, for success. And I would say that is especially true if you're working off-farm full-time or, or even part-time. Uh, you know, one of the fastest ways to achieve failure in any business, and especially in farming, is you know trying to do too much too quickly. I, I think this is particularly true for the uninitiated who uh, have not been involved in farming on a production scale level. Uh, so somebody that tries to go you know from raising you know, 10 or 20 meat birds to 500 meat birds at a time. Uh, see, we can you know there's a lot of mistakes to be made there. Uh, and then it's also true of uh, those who you know try and do everything from them for themselves. Uh, from start to finish for a particular enterprise. And what I mean by that is, you know, um, uh, like we say, you're going to raise some, some pigs, for instance, and, and not only do you think to yourself, well, I'm going to raise pigs, but I'm going to raise all my own feed for these pigs. I'm not going to bring in anything from the outside. Um, I'm not going to go buy feeder pigs. I'm also going to uh, go and buy breeding stock, and I'm uh, – not only am I going to buy breeding stock uh, in just the form of sows and, you know, use uh, artificial insemination, I'm also going to have a boar, and uh, then I'm, I'm going to raise all these guys, and I'm going to market them. And, man, you're, you're biting off a whole lot right there, let me tell you. So think about if you want to do pigs, just go buy some pigs that you can fatten up. Don't be afraid to bring in outside feeding sources. Learn the ropes. Learn the logistics, and then – learn how to become more efficient and more profitable in time. And then eventually, if you decide you want to add farrowing or you want to raise all your own feed, add just that component and then add 
the other component later once you get each step along the way mastered. Um, you know, I was really fortunate enough early on to borrow a philosophy from another local startup farm who had adopted a strategy that basically said, we're going to add one product per year so that we don't get in over our heads. And, and that to me sounded like just absolute pure wisdom. And that's, you know, that's how we set a course uh, for the first three years of our farming enterprise here at, uh, at our place. Um, our first year of farming was 2007. And for a lot of reasons, we, you know, we chose to do broiler chickens. Um, and in short, I followed Salton's book, Pasture Poultry, Poultry Profits, nearly to the letter to avoid as many mistakes as possible. Uh, you know, I had a great resource in my hands, and I thought, well, if it's not broke, don't try and fix it. And uh, it worked really well for us. I even uh, just took on 50 birds instead of, like, trying, you know, 500 because that's what he says to start with so you don't get in over your head. And, you know, there's a steep and obvious learning curve with raising poultry, which we expected. But surprisingly, there was just as steep or even steeper of a learning curve with the marketing and the business aspects that was not obvious on the front end. You know, having never run a business before, I didn't even think to expect all of those uh, curveballs along the way. Uh, you know, we expected it to be tough to figure out the animal and the logistics of raising the animal, and it was. But I tell you what, figuring out record keeping and setting prices and selecting a butcher to work with and building a marketing list, you know, that was like three to five times more work than, than figuring out the darn chickens. I mean, honestly, the chickens were, were, were pretty easy. So if you jump into too many things at one time, not only do you have to figure out the logistics, you got to figure out, you know, where am I going to have these animals butchered at? Or how am I going to have them cut up? How am I going to price them? How am I going to market them all? It just compounds really fast. It snowballs. So, you know, we did really well with our first batch of chickens. We decided to do a second batch um, that same year. And so going into 2008, you know, we had some experience under our belt. We felt confident that we could we could grow the chicken enterprise. And then we thought, well, you know, we can add something else now. We've got some confidence. We've got some cash flow moving. You know, the great thing about meat chickens, one of the reasons we chose them is you get your money back in like eight to nine weeks. And you can reinvest those funds very fast. So we decided to add pigs in 2008. Well, we ran a couple batches of chickens. We had some we had some money now. We could take a little bit of that and put it towards the pigs. But what we did that alleviated a lot of stress with the pigs was we, 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 we had this marketing list now for our poultry that had grown from like 10 or 12 people to 100 people. And we, we lined up the pigs. We had a mentor. We knew what to kind of expect in terms of raising the pigs and how long it would take and you know, um, uh, you know what we'd have in them. Kind of had a pretty good idea of how to set pricing so we'd be profitable. Um, we figured all that out on the front end, and then we 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 took this this marketing list of people who were buying chickens, and we sold pigs uh, half and whole. We didn't try to sell anything by the cut, and at the time it was chickens. We were just selling whole chickens too. We weren't selling those by the cut either. Um, and we we got you know so many pigs sold. We had all that cash come in. Now we have the confidence. It's like, okay, let's go out. We can buy the pig. We got them sold. Um, it, you know, it just took so much pressure away from adding that second enterprise. Uh, you know, the, it was everything was pre-sold. Money was in hand. The marketing was done. So we just had to, you know, raise the pigs and select a butcher. And you know, quite honestly, the most difficult part of the whole process was just getting the pigs in the trailer the day before it was time to go to the butcher. 
And fortunately, over the years, we've learned a lot of tricks to make that easier as well. Um, but that's kind of how we got started the first two years. And then the third year, I think it was, we had laying hens. So we were familiar with, with chickens. We had a customer base. We were starting to do some farmer's markets. So adding eggs was pretty easy. It wasn't really until the following year in 2010 that we added beef and turkey in the same year. Um, now, obviously, you know, if you if you got it in the back of your mind that, you know, you want to do tree crops or, uh, you know, fruits, nuts, whatever, then you want to try and incorporate stuff like that in along the way in addition to these other enterprises because you need those trees to be growing so that four, five, six years down the road, now you've got another profitable income stream from that as well. And obviously those can be growing while you're profiting from other enterprises that you've started started and are more immediate. And kind of a quick case in point here, Mark Shepard talks about that uh, very thing in his book. You know, like the first year he planted all these chestnut trees, he um, he said that he, he grossed like $4,000 per acre. And I remember hearing one time about this person that called him out and said he was lying. So there's no way you can gross $4,000 an acre from chestnut trees the year you plant them. And he said, now hold on. I didn't say I was grossing $4,000 an acre from chestnut trees. I said I was grossing $4,000 an acre. And that was coming in the form of annual vegetable crops. And it wasn't Mark's goal to be an annual veggie farmer the rest of his life, but he had to have something to pay the bills and to have some income stream and cash flow while his tree crops were getting to maturity. And you can apply that same thing to what I do with building soil and getting grasses established and eventually, you know, building some fence and then buying some cows. I mean, it just takes time to get there. Um, so you can't do everything at once, but you got to have it in the back of your mind of, you know, what's my big long-term plan and, you know, how do we get there? So, you know, in, in summary, what you really want to do along the way too is, you know, analyze each enterprise independently, determine, you know, before and after the fact, you know, can it be profitable? Was it profitable? Not only was it profitable, but how profitable was it? You know, did you enjoy doing it? Was it easy to market? Uh, if it's something you think you're going to keep on doing, you know, what other enterprises can you add where you can market additional but similar products to your existing customer base? Those are the, the big takeaways is, you know, trying not to get in over your head and, um, you know, building that marketing list as you go, and as you add more things, you're becoming more efficient with the things you've already learned, and um, you can take on these new things with less risk. You've got customers you can market it to, and it just kind of all starts to, to flow together and meld together. So those are my thoughts, Jack. Um, to learn more about me, feel free to visit my website at DarbySimpson.com. A number of uh, free open source articles out there and all kinds of stuff that you can read and, and hopefully learn from. Uh, if you would like, you can also sign up for the uh, the free email blog newsletter. For those that want to go deeper, I do offer one-on-one -on -one consulting. Also wanted to take a moment and mention once again the pasture and livestock management class that's going to be held at Elisha Spring Farm in early September. Uh, myself, along with Mike Hagwood, will be co-instructing the two-day workshop. And for those of you that don't know Mike, Super knowledgeable, super nice guy, has a lot of great experience. Um, to learn more about Mike, check out TSP episode 1192, and I think that'll tell you everything you need to know about Mike uh, and his experiences. Uh, the class is going to be held from Thursday evening, September 3rd, through Sunday morning, September 6th, and to see a complete itinerary, head on over to Permaethos uh, website and check that out. Um, 
Uh, and if you're thinking about registering for the class, I want to mention a couple different discounts that are being offered uh, for the first time on any course uh, at Elijah Spring Farm. There's actually a couples discount, which will save you over 10% versus buying two tickets separately. There's also a uh, Permit Ethos Founders discount uh, of 10% as well. And as of earlier this week, we are about 25% sold out. So please get over there and check it out. And I hope to see lots of you in West Virginia. Take care. Great stuff from Darby. And on the uh, workshop, I will have a link in today's show notes to where you can register for it at the Permaethos website. Um, it's interesting that they're 25% sold out. I haven't even mentioned it on the air yet just because, well, I've been on vacation and dealing with these contractors and everything else, and they, they got it kind of rolled out for registration while I was away. Um, so uh, I wanted to put out some information on it. It was great that Darby mentioned it again today. I do have it on the uh, website, on the show notes today for episode 1611. If you want to sign up for it, again, they're about 25% sold out, and uh, we're a few months out from it. Plenty of room right now, but I imagine after today and next week when I put out a blog post on it, It'll fill up pretty fast, so you want to take advantage of that and learn from real pros at Elijah Spring Farms and the Permaethos Livestock Management Event. Anyway, next up today, kind of staying in that same vein for a moment, let's hear from Paul Wheaton at Wheaton Labs. Paul has an amazing permaculture community he's building and developing on a bit over 100 acres in, in, in rugged northwestern Montana. He's also known as the Duke of Permaculture. So, Mr. Wheaton, what is up at the dukedom of Wheatonville and Wheaton Labs this last two weeks while I've been gone? Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with another report of stuff going on at Wheaton Laboratories. First, rain. Glorious, delicious, beautiful rain. Uh, weird rain. We got oodles of rain for some reason in July, which is when we're supposed to have like nothing but sun and dry and desertification. Um, whereas in June, we're supposed to get two inches of rain and we got pretty much zero. So uh, all of the stuff that we planted in June uh, just never got quite germinated or if it did germinate, it died. And uh, uh, But now we've got stuff uh, uh, coming up everywhere, lots of weeds, and uh, we got lots of uh, things that we've planted that are starting to show up now. Um, the weeds that we're encouraging uh, are things that build soil, like lamb's quarters, and the things that we're discouraging are things that are allelopathic stuff. So we are out there pulling some weeds now, but, you know, like good permaculturalists, we're leaving a lot of them out there. Um, and then we just figured like this fall we'll plant more of the kinds of crops that we want to see um, and just let the let the weeds have their way right now. Uh, so it looks like hell, I guess. You know, So if you came by right now, you'd probably think, man, this is the big old weed patch. We do have a bunch of food crops, and a lot of the weeds are edible. We've been eating a lot of them. Now, um, while you were on vacation, uh, we had a bunch of the CodeRanch.com staff and the uh, staff and the Permies.com staff out here on their vacation, um, I thought that they would enjoy the massive Missoula Saturday market the most. Now, the the Saturday market in Missoula uh, gets about 8,000 people every Saturday, uh, and the population of Missoula is about 85,000. So 10% of our population comes out every Saturday for the, for the market. I think that's an awesome indicator of how awesome a community is. Uh, but these folks seem to like the Lewis and Clark Caverns more than that, uh, and they like floating the Alberton Gorge the very most. Uh, we also spent time at Glacier National Park, Garnet Ghost Town, and we visited Mike Ayler, the author of the $50 and Up Underground House book. 
on, and, and speaking of Mike, we managed to work a sweet deal with him and we're selling his videos for half price. Uh, I think this is the first time ever that they've been anything less than a hundred bucks. Um, lots of, uh, uh, stuff going on here, especially with Wafati 0.7, which we now call Allerton Abbey. We're doing a major overhaul on that. Uh, it's to really had to have a really good test of the annualized thermal inertia. In other words, uh, will the heat from the summer heat the structure through a Montana winter? Uh, in order to do that, in order to do the test adequately, we need to make sure that the two walls that are not part of the thermal mass are of extremely high insulative quality. Initially, we were going to simply build a second wall about three feet out from each of the existing mediocre walls. The idea being that the two mediocre walls make for one really great insulation barrier. Then we changed our minds to make the new wall be farther out and be something that looks like a solarium. Somebody pointed out that if the experiment is a success, a lot of people will claim that it's not annualized thermal inertia that did it, but passive solar gain. So we dropped that path and went back to the plain double wall plan. Then somebody else pointed out that people might even get confused about that. Uh, the final plan is to remove the existing two walls and replace them each with first-class straw bale walls. We are also augmenting the current log walls with cob. So, uh, as I record this, there's about seven people working up there on Allerton Abbey, uh, and six more people arrived today. Uh, other small jobs that we've done include uh, the redoing the face of Wafati 0.8. Nothing really big in permaculture about that. Uh, it's looking very nice now. Um, plus, the interior is currently looking extra, extra beautiful. We're uh, we're hoping to get some new pictures up real soon now. Uh, we uh, uh, share a road with uh, a local timber company, and they came through and uh, graded the road uh, uh, with a grader. And uh, I talked to them ahead of time, and I talked about the value of a crown, and they kind of nodded their heads like, oh, yes, we're going to do, and they didn't. So we're going to uh, – so we got new – our roads are nice and smooth now, but I think that it's not going to last maybe a few months uh, because there's no crown. But we've got some equipment coming in, and – and we hope to put a proper ca- uh, crown on our roads. Um, I think that's it. Uh, we've got uh, a lot of other projects in the works, but they're perpetually in the works. We've got we to gotta wrap them up and get more on the done list here. So that's the news. Uh, talk to you later, Jack. I, I love hearing from Paul. Again, I keep saying this, but I've got to get up to Montana sometime. And I guess summertime would be the time to do it. Though I've, I've kind of learned that like the worst time for me to leave my property is midsummer. Uh, this is the harshest time of year for me here. Uh, the guy that I actually had from the audience did a really good job of taking care of things. And he was there for, here for half time. The other half time, my nephew was here. And things faltered a little bit. And then there's just some things I know to do that it's hard to teach a caretaker to do in a day. Um, to get things, especially the plants, through this 100-degree heat, no rain, that type of thing. Um, so I'm playing catch-up now. So summertime's the time to go to Montana, but it's not the time to leave here. So I'd have to I'd do it some other time. But I need to get up there and see my buddy Paul. 
Another good friend of mine, though, that I love seeing and get to see uh, more often than you'd think, even though you know he's in Utah and I'm out here in Texas. In fact, we just talked today about I'll be doing a couple workshops this fall here at the Spearco Homestead, and John will be coming to at least one, if not both of them. Of course, I mean John Pugliano. So I have a question for him because I've been hearing a lot about it from you guys. I want to kind of frame it a little bit in my own way, though, for John. Basically, John, I have my own thoughts on this, but I would love to hear yours. Gold and silver are now approaching five-year low marks. While the prepper community is more silver-focused and seems to think silver is down more, when you look at the two, they are once once again in not in lockstep, but very close with each other. This is also in spite of the fact that gold did outperform significantly from 2005 to 2010. Everyone is asking, where's the bottom? What are your thoughts on that? Also, can you discuss how the run to buy equities via the Fed purchased bull, a bull, the, the run to buy equities via a Fed purchased bull market has pulled money out of gold, uh, silver, and frankly, all commodities? What say you, John? This kind of follows up on my show from uh, Tuesday this week with someone that's a little more financially switched on, I think, than me. John, what say you, man? Jack, before I address your specific questions on precious metals. Let me step back, and for the sake of the listeners, let me review a couple topics. The first thing I want to point out is the overall volatility we've seen in commodities, basically a price collapse since around 2011. In particular, what I want to talk about right now is the price collapse we've seen in oil. Roughly 12 months ago, West Texas Intermediate was trading over $100 a barrel. Today, it's under 50. What I want to point out is that that 50% decrease in the price of crude oil has been driven by the economic reality of an imbalance between supply and demand. And the key thing that I want to get across to the TSP listeners is that that imbalance was incredibly small. The supply of crude oil on a global basis is exceeding the demand by only about 2%. Think about that. Over a 50% decrease in the price of crude oil and the supply is only out of balance about 2%. Now, there's a lot of factors that go into this, but one thing I want to focus on in this example is, is because of the shale oil revolution and because North Dakota went from basically producing no oil to producing about a million barrels a day. That's one of the contributing factors that has caused a crushing 50% decrease in the price of crude oil. Now, you add other factors to that, the appreciation of the U.S. dollar, overall global slowdown, the fact that Russia and the Middle East and other OPEC countries have their oil spigots open at full capacity because they need the revenue. This imbalance is very uncertain and it's hard to predict. And that's why oil prices have seen so much fluctuation and volatility over the last 12 months or so. So whenever we talk about any type of market price, always consider supply and demand. The other item that I want to review with the TSP listeners is the reality of the business cycle. What's different about the business cycle that we're currently experiencing now, and as Jack has mentioned in previous episodes about how this is a continuing recession with different peaks and valleys, it's just an extension of the same one. You see, in past booms and busts, the government would intervene and then they'd get out. What's different about this business cycle than what we've seen in past is that governments throughout the world and central banks globally have continued to intervene even when it appears that the economy on the surface is improving. So with so much easy money flowing into the system and with no real demand to buy products and services, corporations know that they can no longer make malinvestments in factories and in mines and refining capacity. So what they've chosen to do instead is to take all this cheap money and invest in mergers, acquisitions, and in stock buyback programs. 
So what that's resulted in is a global stock market that's at all-time highs with historically stretched valuations. So money that otherwise would have been flowing into real assets, into real hard commodities, well, because of the global slowdown and an overcapacity and an oversupply of products and services, that money has moved into global stock markets chasing after profits, which have been grossly exaggerated because of central banks' quantitative easing and easy money policies, which have allowed corporations to buy back their own stock rather than making investments which would improve ultimate productivity and which would be favoring the consumption of commodities. So in my opinion, that's why I think we've seen a collapse in the commodity prices, but not yet in stock prices. Because on the surface, it appears that corporate profits are healthy, and corporate profits are what ultimately drives stock prices. So to answer some of Jack's original questions, the ratio between gold and silver is hard to nail down, In recent history, I'd have to say that gold seems to be more favored when the government and the central banks come in and artificially prop things up because silver has more of an industrial application. And so when the economy's doing well on its own, silver tends to outperform gold. But when the government intervenes in a manufactured crisis, in that case, gold may outperform silver. Over an extended period of time, though, historically, they both retain value. To the real question of when are we going to reach a bottom, well, I think the answer to that question is in the growth of China and India, and in particular in China. This extended business cycle that we've been in for 20 years, all the malinvestments, all the overcapacity has been predicated on increased consumption in Asia. The easiest way to tell if the Asian economy is expanding or contracting is to monitor the price of oil. As a general rule, the movement in oil will be reflected in the direction of most commodities. Now, specifically to the link between oil and gold, historically, there's about a 15 times ratio. And it makes sense that energy should be correlated to the price of gold or to the price of any commodity. Because when you think about it, how do you get a commodity? Well, you have to mine them out of the earth and then you have to refine them. And so the largest cost input to mining and refining commodities is energy. So when energy prices go low, input costs of commodities decrease, and then likewise, the price of commodities can go lower. So let's look at that 15 times ratio between gold and oil and try and predict the future. If oil is the leading economic indicator, take the current price of oil right now at about $49 a barrel, multiply that times 15, and that gives you a gold price of $735 an ounce. Well, does that seem too low? Then do it the other way. Assume that gold is going to be the leading economic indicator and take the current price of gold, which is about $1,090, divide that by 15, and that would mean that the price of oil would have to go to over $72 a barrel. Well, that may seem closer to reality because less than a month ago, the price of oil was hovering around $60 a barrel. The point I'm trying to make is that there's a relationship between commodities and the cost of energy, and that includes precious metals. And that right now, there's an imbalance between supply and demand, and that's being driven by the slowdown in China. So I'm not predicting that gold's going to drop all the way down to $735 an ounce, but I do think that it and other commodity prices can go significantly lower than they are right now, and I think it's all predicated on growth coming out of China and India. I'm going to provide Jack a link to a blog post where I superimposed the price of gold with the Chinese GDP growth. It's amazing how well they correlate. As Chinese GDP grew in nominal dollars, which peaked out in about 2011 and has been in decline, it matches up with the same decrease we've seen in gold. 
Now, in regards to the slowdown in Asia and specifically in China, remember, I started out this discussion talking about the relationship with supply and demand and how only a slight oversupply in the price of oil, just 2% oversupply, has resulted in a 50% decrease in the price of oil over the last 12 months. So a very small, seemingly insignificant imbalance in supply and demand can have a major effect on a commodity's price. So when you look at an economy like China, even though they're continuing to grow and they may be growing at 6 or 7%, depending upon whose estimates you believe, the thing to remember is, is that the investment and the expansion in commodities and the capacity to invest in more mining and more refining capabilities, all that expansion over the last 20 years has been predicated on double-digit growth coming out of Asia. So even though China may still be growing at 6 or 7%, the estimates for future growth were based on 12 or 13 or 14% growth rates. That lack of growth has created an imbalance in the supply and demand for what commodities are actually being needed today based on what they were forecast to be needed. And so consequently, that's why all commodities, not just oil, not just gold and silver, but all commodities are at extreme lows. Most of them are down over the last five or six years. That includes copper, aluminum, iron ore, cement, lumber products, forestry-type products. And in fact, when you look at some commodities like coal, you see that those prices are are suppressed back to levels that, that haven't been seen for 15 or 20 years. Prices aren't going to stabilize until we see some global growth and until supply outstrips demand. Now, the other side of the coin is that someday that imbalance will shift. There'll be a rotation out of stock market equities and the profits will be made in hard commodities as their price appreciates and it will probably appreciate rapidly. But that time hasn't come yet. Until I can see some stability or some growth out of China and India, I'm remaining very cautious. I have about 50% of my portfolio in cash. The way that you do that within a 401k or within your broker's account is you move that money into a cash equivalent type position like a money market fund or like a very short-term government bond fund, perhaps a fund that invests in three-month government T-bills. In my opinion, you want to keep your exposure to long-term bond funds at a minimum right now because any increase in interest rates will result in bond funds losing value. Check out the link that I'm sending Jack. That'll not only show you the chart on the relationship with gold and the Chinese economy, but that article will also contain links that'll take you back to blog posts and podcasts that I've done that talk more about that 15 times relationship between oil and gold. These are very complicated subjects. They're hard to address in just a few minutes. So if you'd like to hear more about my opinions and my thoughts on not only the economy, but in general wealth building skills, I'd invite you to listen to my podcast. You can find that at wealthsteading.com. Thanks for the question, Jack. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Great stuff from John, and I want to add a little bit to it that exasperates this problem that John didn't touch on, probably because he never worked in, in the sales industry the way that I did, and specifically the part of the sales industry that I did. When I worked for a company called Fluke Networks, as the regional sales vice president for the Northeastern United States, every year I would have to put together a forecast for about 20 key pieces of test equipment. Uh, some total of the region was about $500 million in business the last year that I was there. $500 million in business. Um, and what I would do is I would go out to all of my salespeople and say, okay, 
I need a forecast from you. Uh, uh, how many uh, units you think you're going to sell each quarter next year based on your relationships and, and, and what you have going on on the street and uh, what your people are telling you. And here's your numbers from last year, the numbers from the year before, the numbers from the year before that. And I would take that number and I would look at it. And, and, and my, my people would sandbag as much as they could because they knew their quotas were going to be put on it. I'd want to sandbag, but I knew I couldn't. Because I had to provide a realistic forecast, because if I didn't, I would lose my job. So I would try to come up with a realistic forecast, but in the end, there would be a certain amount of, of you know me following up on my salespeople, talking to the people that were actually going to pull the trigger on the business next year, and of course they're talking to their superiors and, and their, the people that, that work for them on both ends to determine what their, what their year looks like next year. That's what this is all about. How optimistic are you about next year? And unless it was, you know, heading into something really bad, it was generally they were optimistic and everybody expected that the numbers had to be more than they were this year. Now, I would take all of that optimism and be as, as pessimistic as I could in reality with it, do my best effort and put together a forecast and say, this is how many millions of dollars I think we're going to do in this sector, this sector, this sector, and this sector. Here's all my historical data. Here's all the things that I think. And then it was like I should have never done it. I should have never done it. I would get fired for not doing it, so that's why I did it. But it was all an exercise in futility. What would always happen is the people at the top of my little sub-pyramid inside of Fluke would just add to the number. We need X percent of growth this year, so here's how you're going to get it. And we're going to give you a new product that may or may not actually be available for sale, but we're saying it's going to be, and we're expecting this, and we know things you don't, even though you're closer to the street than us. So they would add to the number. Now, they would send that number to the, the real master of the top of the pyramid, a company called Danaher. Danaher is the multi-billion dollar conglomerate that owned Fluke and a bunch of other companies. They'd go, you didn't add enough. We're in the high-tech sector here, guys. We have to have 15% growth this year. And they would just change the forecast. Now, if that's where it stopped, it doesn't really affect the stock market or anything like that. But this is a publicly traded company. Okay, Danaher's a publicly traded company. It is a what you would call a blue chip type stock in the stock market. This is a company that always makes money, that pays good dividends, that shows good growth rate. Now, they didn't just own Fluke. They own this whole bunch of other companies. Some of them also public. Most of them, like Fluke Networks, though, private companies held inside the conglomerate. They did this with everybody. Okay. They did this with everybody. So they would then put out forward-looking statements to the market about the future of their company. Now, this is not cooking books. That's not what this is. What this is is, is a company trying to manage its sub-companies and setting what they believe to be realistic goals. I don't believe that the numbers that they would pull out were necessarily wrong. They might have been overly optimistic, but they were based on things they knew we didn't. They did have information that as a salesperson working in my little fiefdom, I didn't have time to be paying attention to a lot of stuff that I pay now. They were looking at global trends. They were looking at global forecasting. They were looking at global commodities. They were doing their best effort to be positive and to set a goal that they felt like, well, they say they can't do it, but if we set that goal, they can. And nine times out of ten, they would set the goal and we would hit it. 
Okay, so they were actually pretty good at that job, but they were basing all that information and that that number was upcycled multiple times based on various levels of optimism. Okay, that happens in the toy industry. Okay. Not just the computer testing equipment industry. That happens in the copper industry. That happens in the concrete industry, the oil industry. Every global industry in the world, this goes on. And it's based on what John was saying then. Things like these 10%, 12% growth rates. So you think, well, you know, if your economy's still growing at 7%, that's pretty astronomical. We'd kill for that in this country. A real 7% growth rate? Yeah. We'd be, we'd be, yeah, man, we'd be rocking, man. Employment would be like, unemployment would be like 3% if we had that going on right now. So it sounds great, but if the market's already forecasted above that, which it has, you've got a problem. And it all starts unwinding in each sector one at a time. And as each sector fails to meet, it overspills into the other commodities. So if you look at something like copper, how many industries is the, the, the copper output estimates based on. So what does that do to the commodity? And what I mean is, if construction is saying we're going to build X amount of giant skyscrapers this year, that's a lot of copper going in there. Okay? Uh, and if, if, if the computer test equipment industry is basing, like, so that's what I used to base a lot of my stuff on. Most of our equipment, you plug either a fiber optic or a copper cable into it. Right. Well, there's less copper going in the walls. There's less testing being done. So that, and it all is tied together. The whole market is a giant web. And when they start missing in any sector, it starts pulling it apart like a quilt, or like a crocheted quilt, you know, or a blanket. You start pulling a thread here and a thread there, and the whole thing starts unraveling. And you don't think the numbers need to be that big, but what did John tell you about this crushing drop in oil prices? Supply exceeding demand by 2%. That's a big part of what's going on here. That's why there's so much uncertainty in where we're going to be in the next two years, three years, five years. I do see, I do see recession on the horizon. How far out, I'm just not sure. And how deep, I just don't know. But it's because of all these things. There's way too much fake money going on right now. And it's not about fake money the way you think about it with just printing money. It's these excessively inflated equities And these suppressed commodities that are probably not as suppressed as people think because, in the end, demand pulls the other side of the supply. Those are my thoughts on that. I wish I could give you less gloom and doom right now, but I can't. That's just where we're at. Uh, next up, Gary Collins. I have a, an email here from Tyler. Uh, Tyler found an article, and that article is entitled, How Bacteria Communicate With Us and Build a Special Relationship. It is uh, from Norwich Bioscience Institutes. And what he's taken from it is that if we have healthy gut bacteria, that will break down the phylate found in legumes, which is one of the reasons that legumes are in the don't eat to eat only in moderation uh, world for primal and paleo living. So his question is, can Gary comment on this article which suggests that gut bacteria can actually break down the phylate in legumes? Gary, what say you, sir? Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, and I had a question today from Tyler about phytates in beans and how there was an article he found showing that they, uh, your gut bacteria can break down the phytic acid in beans, but actually it did not say beans in the article from what I read. They were just talking about our ability to break down phytic acid by use by having a digestive enzyme called phytase. So 
It is true. And this is a, a tricky question in the sense that phytic acid found in grains and legumes, which are off the paleo list, is a big reason why paleo people say you should take them out of your diet because phytic acid will bind with iron, zinc, and manganese, uh, thus not letting you absorb it into your bloodstream and be able to use it. And those are very important micronutrients that you need. Um, with that, there are many chemicals that we ingest naturally that aren't harmful, but if we consume them in too large of an amount, that's when they become harmful. And with phytic acid in today's diet, the problem becomes that our diet is highly processed foods, which are nutrient lacking to begin with. So we're not getting all these vital minerals and vitamins that we should be getting anyway. And then we overconsume foods that are not naturally part of our day, should not be part of our daily diet. Thus, like phytic acid, which is found in many, many foods. I mean, it's, it's not just beans and grains, but it's also seeds, nuts, roots, and many vegetables. But in much smaller amounts, it's just phytic acid tends to be high in legumes and grains. So with that, as our diet, as we know, the average American consumes way too many beans and grains. So with that, what we're doing is we're eating a poor diet, nutrient empty, and then we're eating foods that are taking out what nutrition we are getting and binding to it, and then we're just flushing it out in our stool so we never absorb any of it. That's where we end up with these mineral deficiencies that are so common in Americans today. So with that, I think he was trying to hint that he wants to eat beans and doesn't want to cut them out. Just kidding, Tyler. No, we've all been there. I've tried it. There's ways to uh, reduce phytic acid and through soaking, uh, sprouting, and fermenting. But the problem is I've gone through this phase several years ago. And what I did, instead of cutting grains, instead of cutting beans out first, I kept those in, I ate them, I got good organic heirloom grains and beans and did the right things. But the thing is, it's just so much work. And that's what it boils down to a lot of times is, do you want to put all this effort into a food that doesn't have a whole lot of nutrition to begin with? Um, beans are basically a, a high carb food, very starchy. And it doesn't matter with carbohydrates. Remember, a carbohydrate will eventually become a sugar, simple sugar. Even complex carbs, you hear, oh, eat complex carbs. Those are better for you. Yes and no. I mean, you just don't want to overconsume carbohydrates in general. And what happens is that complex carb becomes a simple carb, which becomes sugar. That is how it has to get into our bloodstream. Uh, a polysaccharide, which is a complex carbohydrate, must be broken down to a disaccharide, then uh than a uh, uh, plain saccharide in order for us, monosaccharide to, in order for us to absorb it. So with that, my attitude is this. With grains and beans, what we're doing is we're over-consuming them. So if you want to have uh, a grain item or something, you know, if, you know, you want a burrito or you want beans in your tacos or whatever, that's fine. I mean, it's just... Don't overconsume it and don't make it a staple in your diet. Every once in a while is okay. But with that, most people cannot tolerate consuming grains and beans without having multiple problems. That's just a fact of life. I've done this with tons of clients. I've done it with myself. 
trust me on this one. If you cut out beans and grains out of your standard everyday diet, you will be far, far healthier for it. And when you bring it back in, you've heard me talk about this. When you bring those foods back in, I guarantee you're going to have a negative physical reaction to them. And you're going to go, oh my God, why did I eat that? And especially with beans, let's be honest, what do they do? They make you go toot toot. So it's because there's several sugars actually in beans when it's broken down that we do not have the digestive enzymes to break down in order to digest, absorb into our bloodstream. So what happens is these sugars start to ferment in our colon and that's where you get the gas from. Um, so I'm a fan of not consuming foods that are going to cause me gas, gas or distress, uh, or make me bloated and uncomfortable, you know, to have them every once in a while in a small amount. And I know I'm going to pay the price fine, but that's, uh, how I would explain that. I know there's articles that pop up all the time like that. And this article was done by the Institute of Food Research, which makes me a little leery. Um, with it having food in it, uh, it just tells me there may be some spe special interests in behind it. Um, you never know. This could have been written by the crane and bean industry for all we know. A lot of articles today are actually ghostwritten by the, the actual company or industry that is getting a black eye because of something they're doing. Uh, I'll tell you right now, the, the candy bar industry and Coca-Cola have done this for years. You'd be shocked at how many articles are written by these companies. So, you know, that you, an article that shows the detriments of sugar, they'll come out and write one that says, oh, no, no, sugar's totally fine. And you're all, wait a second. Well, guess what? They wrote it. So that's just a little side note there. And for you guys, I, I know a lot of you have bought in my books. This is a, 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 a plug a little bit, but it's, I would really appreciate it if some of you, uh, or all of you would be great, would go on Amazon and give me a review on my book. I know a ton of you have bought my books. So I can, I get to see the TSP member discounts as they come through. So I, I get to know and I, I see how many people are buying them through it. So I'd really appreciate it. And thanks a lot. I hope that uh, answers some questions. I, I pretty much agree with Gary. I'll just say that I do like beans. I, I don't eat beans as a staple in my diet, but, you know, uh, occasionally when we do a barbecue, we do like a barbecue cowboy bean thing, and it, you know, it's awesome. Something I, I've learned and adapted after uh, learning it from Sandy, uh, who, who's uh, helped cater several of our events uh, out of California. She's awesome, and she has her own recipe for it, and I've kind of put my spin on it, and I, I like that. I like sometimes, you know, going full bore and making some good old-fashioned nachos and some refried beans with that, or making some hummus with some good olive oil and pepper and it's just good and, and I think that we have to balance this whole uh, desire to eat well I guess you know from a healthy standpoint with allowing ourselves some exuberances and I would rather give myself the exuberance of eating a little bit of extra carbs this week during a, a cookout or something or going to a really great Middle Eastern place and having some hum, hummus and some, some naan bread and stuff like that or, or what have you uh, than eating, you know, a, a bunch of cake and candy and oatmeal cream pies or something like that. So I, I kind of put the, the this, a lot of the stuff that people make staples kind of go on my treat list. And I think that's kind of what Gary's saying. So I, I w would agree with that. I, I don't think I want to put a tremendous amount of effort into being able to eat beans every day. But I also 
it's one of those things I'm not willing to give up. I, I'll give up a lot of sugary sweet sh stuff, uh, a lot of a lot of things like that. I, I don't eat a lot of bread or whatever, but uh, you know, occasionally some beans, especially you know when you get into like a lot of the ethnic foods, really are just awesome. And I will tell you that there is one thing you can do with especially beans when you make them kind of Mexican style that that I have found almost nixes 100% um, any uh, gaseous effects from the beans, and it's just an herb. It's called epizote, and I think it tastes fantastic. Here's the thing. Epizote is a lot like cilantro. It doesn't taste like cilantro. It's a lot like cilantro in this way. People either love cilantro or they hate cilantro. People either think it tastes amazing or they think it tastes like feet. Uh, Episote, people either like the flavor contribution or they kind of feel like it tastes like kerosene. And I think it's a genetic thing from the research I've done on it. But the next time you do up like some borracho beans or something like that, if you can get your hands on some episote and put uh, you know some chopped episote into the beans while you're cooking them, I think you'll get them. Uh, I, I don't know what it does, but you don't get the whole gaseous, you know, upset intestine type thing if you use that. It won't necessarily go in everything made with beans or legumes, but it works really good for that kind of like, you know, that Mexican-style, refried, barracho, uh, uh, bean-type world. Anyway, uh, with that, let's go ahead and take our next one. I actually have two for her because I thought she could fit them in, and they're kind of sort of related. First is from Michael. In a recent Expert Council show, uh, you said that you could do fermentation in mason jars. Can you talk more about using mason jars for, for fermentation? Um, and Dan also asked a question about lacto-fermentation. He said, what are my options for canning lacto-fermented foods that won't alter the flavor and texture too much? Last year, I hit a home run with lacto-fermented pickles. They were crunchy, tart, flavorful, and, the wa and wild, uh, living way that I've never tasted before. I planted twice as many cucumber plants this year and expect a bumper crop of cukes, mostly destined for the crock. Last year, I just put them in jars, and when they were done, kept them in the fridge. I'll run out of space in there if I get the harvest I'm expecting. So I want to be able to store pickles at room temperature, but I don't want to lose the flavor profile. Any suggestions? So how do we ferment in mason jars, Erica? And when we end up with a whole ton of lacto-fermented pickles or anything, is there a way that we can store them if we don't have the good old-fashioned root cellar or what have you uh, long-term? Hi, Jack. This is Erica calling in to answer two questions this week, both related to lacto-fermentation. I'm thrilled that the community is as excited about this food preservation technique as I am. So let's start with Michael's question. Michael just wants a little more info on using mason jars for fermentation. I think everyone involved in this community already knows how great mason jars are, so I don't have to convince you that they're the ultimate multitasker for canning and storage and drinking wine on the back porch. But in terms of fermentation specifically, there's a couple of reasons why I really like mason jars. First, they're glass, so they can be cleaned very well and they won't harbor bacteria. This is important because when you're trying to cultivate that environment of beneficial bacteria, you don't want anything competing with the good guys. Second, it's relatively easy to buy or DIY various kinds of airlocks that can make lacto-fermentation just a little more foolproof. And third, and this is probably the most important reason, you can use mason jars to make very small quantities of ferments, either for things that you're recipe testing because you're not sure you're going to love them, or for things like fermented chili paste that even if you do love it, you're only going to eat it in small quantities. When I ferment in mason jars, I typically use 
quart jars. You can use pint jars, but personally, I would avoid trying to ferment in anything much smaller than that because small volumes of ferments tend to ferment a little unevenly. They tend to ferment a little too fast. And because of this, they tend not to keep as well. So if you're just doing a tester, that's fine. But just know that things that ferment keep better in large volume. If you want a simple and easy weight for your lacto-ferment, I love a jar-in-jar technique. So this is really easy. You start with either a wide mouth quart or half-gallon jar, depending on the volume of ferment you want to have. You fill that jar with your ferment and your brine using our standard lacto-fermentation methods, and then you get a narrow mouth, either four-ounce jar Those are the teeny little jelly jars that often people get like when they want to make enough jam to give as a gift, but not like a large volume. Or you get the regular mouth half pint jar. So regular mouth four ounce or half pint. And you fill that jar with additional brine. And then you use that filled small jelly jar as the weight for your larger jar. It will slip right inside the mouth of the wide mouth jar. I promise it'll fit perfectly and it will push down all of the vegetables. So they stay under the brine, don't float up to the surface, aren't exposed to oxygen, and they're kept nice and perfectly fermenting. About the only drawback or warning I would give about fermenting in mason jars is that your ferments should really be kept out of direct sunlight. So if you ferment in a shady space away from a window, having the clear mason jar out on your countertop really isn't a big deal. It's not going to impact anything that much. But if your countertop is in sun or, you know, the sun streams in through the window for part of the day, what I would do is just drape a towel or place a paper bag over the fermentation jar. And this will just help keep that sunlight away from the ferment and ensure you're getting the best results. Okay, so let's move on to Dan's question about canning lacto-fermented food and how canning might impact flavor and texture. I'm a bit torn about this. On the one hand, you absolutely can water bath can fully fermented pickles safely. So from a safety perspective, this is a totally okay thing to do. On the other hand, all of the nutritional benefits will be lost and you will definitely see a decrease in the quality of the fermented product, the sauerkraut or the pickle or what have you. Both traditional pickles and sauerkraut, for example, that are water bath canned will get quite mushy and there's really not a whole lot you can do about this. So rather than canning, you might consider root cellaring. Root cellaring is the traditional way to keep ferments for months, three, four, six, seven months, depending on the size of the fermentation container that you're working with and the temperature of your root cellar. So if you live in an area where fall and winter are fairly cool, this might be the perfect solution for you. You don't need an actual root cellar to do this. You just need a place in your home where the temperatures stay quite cool but not freezing. So if you have a spot, say, in a crawl space or basement or an unheated garage, that could serve very well as a sort of root cellar. One thing some people have done if they live in an area where the ground temperature stays pretty cold is to dig a big hole in the ground and then drop a broken old chest freezer or refrigerator into that hole. The insulation of the chest freezer keeps anything that's inside it from freezing 
and the close contact to the ground keeps the temperatures very cool and even all year round. So that's an option. I would say that in general, if you have an area in or around your house that you can take advantage of or build that will stay around 45 degrees, even up to about 50 degrees, your ferments will stay in good condition for as long as you'll probably want them to. Like, I'm talking six months or more. So look around because you might find that there are options in your home for a root cellar type storage situation that you never considered. So root cellaring, if you have the room, is healthier because you preserve all the probiotic quality of the fermented food. Whereas if you go to the trouble to ferment something and then you can it, the canning process itself is going to kill off all those beneficial bacteria. You're going to take what is a living ferment and you're going to turn it into a dead product. There are some real disadvantages to going this direction, but let's assume you have your heart set on canning your pickles. And I understand storage is an issue. If you heard my bit on an earlier episode of TSP about water bath canning and botulism, then you know the big thing when you're looking at canning safety is the acidity of the food being canned. Fully fermented vegetables, in theory, should be totally low enough to safely water bath can. But fermentation is by definition a process. So it's not like adding standardized vinegar with a standard acetic acid content to a vegetable and then boom, knowing it's safe to water bath can. With fermentation, the pH of the food drops as the fermentation progresses. So it's a fairly long process and you have to be quite confident about that process, the process of fermentation itself and the degree to fermentation your food has undergone. The standard approved recipe for water bath canning fermented cucumber pickles, which I'll send to Jack so you can look at, calls for three to four weeks of fermentation at 70 to 75 degrees or five to six weeks between 55 and 65. After this amount of time, your cucumbers should be completely olive green and a bit translucent looking all the way through. They won't have any sign of rawness. They'll be fully fermented and the pH should have dropped sufficiently to make them safe to can. To can the fermented pickles, specifically you remove the pickles from the brine and you raw pack those pickles into your prepared clean canning jars. While you're packing the pickles into the jars, you bring all that reserved brine up to a boil and you simmer the brine for five minutes. Then you add the hot brine back to the jars with the pickles, lit up your jars with the standard water bath canning process and process pints for 10 minutes or quarts for 15 As you can certainly tell, my preference is to avoid canning fermented foods if possible. However, if canning was really my only option, I would try to do a few things to minimize the textural impact of the heat treatment. The first is I would ferment my pickles with grape leaves. The tannin in the grape leaves helps the pickles stay crisp throughout the fermentation process. So this means you're going into that water bath canning process with pickles that are as crisp as they really can be. You want to start with crisp pickles if you want to have any hope of getting crisp pickles out of the jar after that heat treatment. I would consider adding a very small amount of calcium chloride, which is sold as pickle crisp, to the jars when packing the pickles. This is something you'll want to look into and decide if you're comfortable with it. Personally, I am completely comfortable with using calcium chloride as a canning agent if you are familiar with how much to use and kind of how it works, which is 
basically to strengthen the cell walls of the product that you're pickling. And finally, I would follow an approved 30-minute, 180-degree pasteurization method to process my pickles rather than processing at the full rolling boil for 10 minutes pints, 15 minutes for quarts. This lower temperature processing will help the pickles maintain a better texture, but it's not something that you can do with any recipe. So I'll send Jack the info on this so he can put it in the show notes if he wants to. Well, okay, Michael and Dan, thank you both so much for your great questions on some lacto-fermentation specifics. Again, guys, my name is Erica. Keep those questions on small-scale homesteading, food preservation, productive homekeeping, and more coming. And come visit me anytime at nwedible.com or drop by facebook.com slash nwedible to say hi. I'm there all the time. Thanks so much, and I will talk to you guys again next week. Next question is for Jeff Lott, and this comes from Kelly. Kelly's thinking about leaving the good old USA and going to the highlands of Central America. She says, what tools and equipment should I take in a shipping container? So we're talking about a, a sizable uh, thing here. From the USA to subtropical highland Central America to set up permaculture settlements, propagate them for retreats, villages, food processing, exporting from bare ground. My thoughts so far are things like key line plows, open source ecology, brick presses, etc., tree transplanter, nursery shade cloth, bug screen, mesh produce bags, uh, hyper adobe earth bag building, uh, basic tools, solar panels, hand drills, saws, serrated scythe, uh, what more? Nursery potting equipment, extractor still for essential oils and tools for creating value uh, for added store products. What would you recommend on all of this, please? Thank you infinitely. Many blessings and gratitude for your work. Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here, and I'm um, answering a question from Kelly in relation to um, when moving to a new area, a new location um, that might not have everything you need um, for equipment to be sourced, uh, what would you bring and was it better to source locally if possible? And there's a few suggestions here of uh, fully uh, stocking up a shipping container and shipping it into a new location that's um, subtropical and, and highland um, to set up a permaculture um, settlement or project. And um, so... Um, the first thing would be seeds, I'd imagine, and looking for seeds, uh, making sure that you could bring in seeds that are appropriate for the location and that may not be easily available um, and would be of value to the local people. And then um, another one, and it would be worth researching that, of course, because there may be some plants and seeds that you could bring in, if it is legal to bring them in with, through customs, uh, that would be a great value to, to local people. Uh, they add to the, the food resources. Um, a key line plow. Well, if you're in an area that has um, grazing and you want to do, you know, want to um, uh, relieve compaction and it's not too rocky, a key line key line plow could be uh, a good implement or any kind of implement that is a decompactor. A forage harvester could be a good one too um, if you uh, needed to pick up large amounts of mulch. Um, I think the forage harvesters are a great tool, uh, but it is quite a large piece of equipment tows behind a tractor. Um, 
also um, a brick press, a mud brick press. If they're not available, that could be great. A tree plant transplanter. Well, if um, if that's something you might think you you, you would use, uh, that could be that could be good. If it can't be available late, um, locally, uh, nursery shade cloth. I'd imagine that's usually available. Uh, bug screen, fly screen. Uh, I would imagine that's usually available. But it'd be real useful if it wasn't. Make life a lot easier. Um, mesh produce bags for hyper adobe earth bag building. I would imagine that's usually available. Um, and um, basic tools. Now, um, there are definitely good tools to ship from one part of the um, planet to the other because there are often deficiencies in particular tools. I've taken whole wheelbarrows into the Amazon and into the Middle East. I've packed my suitcase inside the bin and dismantled the, the, the um, handles and the, and the wheels and packed them all up because a lot of places can't get a good... Um, wheelbarrow you often can't get a good rake and you often can't get a good postal shovel and then other places you can't get good machetes and some places you can so it just depends what's available definitely good tools um, are worth bringing in and you can actually help other people make those tools up um, locally for uh, themselves once they've got a good model to to, to copy um, solar panels um, yes I think solar panels would definitely be worth taking in, so, um, I think it's a shame that we still use polycrystal panels when you can um, you can get uh, copper indium selenium gallium panels uh, the CISG panels are definitely more efficient less embodied energy um, see a broader spectrum of light um, handle shade much better and do not derate with temperature so they're much better for pumping um, water on hot days of course um, and there are better general solar equipment available if you search for it um, there are better charge inverters uh, there are better MTT, MTPs um, and of course um, you can go for the standalone, which I prefer, battery system, and you can use nickel-iron. So nickel-iron batteries last over 20 years, which are great. They're definitely the batteries to go for. They're the original batteries. They're definitely the best. Hand drills, well, I suppose, if you can't get good drills, um, usually you can get good drills. Um, saws uh, and uh, serrated cycle I don't know what a serrated cycle is Sives, well sives if you're in a temperate climate Sives tend not to be so useful in the subtropics and tropics um, You might go for you know, nursery potting equipment um, I like the rocket pots because they grow such high quality trees um, A still for essential oils um, equipment to make a solar dryer you can usually get in any any site usually um, fermentation equipment um, anything that is useful for extending the life of product or uh, increasing the uh, nutrient quality and extending life of product, product like firm, fermenting um, equipment or um, processing equipment and jars and things like that they're all of great value. Um, also, um, I think that um, if you if you really look into what is possible to import first and research what is available on a site, you can really um, 
come up with some um, good possibilities. Um, we've uh, brought in uh, compost tea um, equipment and uh, oxygenated compost tea brewers uh, to sites, even small ones, uh, that really add an electric net fences and uh, for uh, free for uh, tractor and chickens um, and uh, other livestock like goats, uh, small electric fence units um, and um, electric cell grazing. Um, mobile fences, those sort of things are sort of cutting edge today and give us a great flexibility in our, um, in our systems. Um, so we can sort of plug in chickens into food forest, then plug them out and then put them into, um, composting processes and, um, and garden tractoring processes. All of those things, uh, would be very valuable, but it's really hard. You can't just make an electric net system. You might be able to make an electric, basic electric fence system. Small energizers that run those systems would also be extremely valuable. Um, and, um, I think that's about it. Of course, you know, read bed grey water, uh, information, uh, usually you can make all those systems on site and get yourself into, um, you know, uh, biological cleaning systems, compost toilets and all those things can usually be made as long as you have the information and uh, technical drawings to follow. Okay, great talking to you again. Lovely to be involved in this great system. Uh, talk to you soon. Signing out, Jeff Lawton over in Australia. I, as usual, don't have a lot to add to Jeff Lawton's stuff because he's just so thorough. Um, I would throw in, though, I didn't, maybe I missed it, but I didn't hear laser level from either Kelly's question or from Jeff. If you're going to be doing earthworks, you can, you can whip up, uh, A-frame levels like that fast, but the, the time savings, uh, especially with major installation, uh, that can be done with a laser level are such that, you know, it's a $700 laser level level off Amazon right now, uh, you can get them, and I'll put a link to the one that I recommend in today's show notes, and I can survey by myself, you know, an acre an hour easy, easy, without even, you know, trying to, where if I'm doing small beds and stuff, I can do it all with an A-frame level, but when you get out into mainframe stuff, I, I just think that it, it, it's so valuable, and, you know, if you're going to the highlands of Ecuador or Costa Rica or something like that, it may be a little bit more difficult to come up with one of those once you get there. Uh, compared to some of the other things, it doesn't take up a lot of space. So that would be the one addition I'd have. The other thing is, though, I don't know how it would be to ship them. Um, the, the nickel iron battery is an incredibly good recommendation for long-term solar arrays. And I just want to remind you that thanks to Stephen Harris, we have a pretty significant discount on nickel iron batteries available from Iron Edison Batteries for all MSB members. That applies to everybody, not just Kelly. So I want to throw that in there. You'll find that in the, the benefits section of your MSB um, payment and if you're or your MSB uh, account. And if you if you use that discount code, you've just paid for MSB for years. Because the one thing about the nickel iron batteries is they are expensive. They they are they are more expensive, but you know, you can spend the money now or spend the money later is the way to look at it. You know, a 20-year battery is something to behold. And it's the best of the best for long-term value. So just a reminder, Iron Edison batteries, good discount on them for you in the MSB and the benefits section. Next question is for expert council member Tim Glantz. This is from CUDA. 
Tim, can you talk about the pros and cons of the Stewart and Stevenson LMTV and FMTV trucks that I'm seeing a lot on the government auction pages lately? I've always wanted a deuce, but are they getting a little long in the tooth by now? Are they still worth it? Tim, what say you? Hi, Jack. Anybody out there in TSB land? It's Tim Glantz with Old Grouch's Military Surplus with an answer for CUDA about the FMTV series of military trucks. FMTV stands for Family of Military Tactical Vehicles, and if any of you have seen on the news reports the newer big military trucks that have the cab over engine design where the cab is all the way to the forward front, uh, that is what we're talking about. They are starting to show up on the military auction sites and in surplus now, and uh, right as a time where the deuce and a halves are not showing up at the auctions. Are they good trucks to have? Uh, yes and no. I'll go into the advantages first. They are well designed. They're fairly reliable. Um, they have a Caterpillar engine and Allison transmission, both pieces that you can get parts for just about anywhere. And uh, they're fairly new, so you know you don't have one with a lot of age on it if you buy one. The downsides. I mentioned that CAD engine. You can get parts for a CAD engine just about anywhere in the country. You will also pay dearly for parts for a CAD engine anywhere in the country. Uh, as an old retired cat salesman once told me, he said, you may find a better product, but you won't pay more for it. The engines, depending on which model you get, uh, will probably be computer-controlled, although some of the early ones weren't. And you will have to have special cat electronic technician software and the interface box to do proper diagnostics on it, as well as to calibrate things if you repair certain components and other work. That software is expensive. And you don't buy the software. You only license it for a period of time, and then you go back and you have to license it again. So that's something to think about, as well as the rest of the truck with the drivetrain and everything else. Every unit in the Army that has these trucks gets a whole chest full of specialized tools used for maintenance on them, and you won't have that. They are a lot more complicated to maintain. The systems are more complicated than the earlier trucks. The electrical systems are. The electronics on the engines and the transmissions are. Uh, everything is more complicated. So you need to be good at troubleshooting and good at doing your work in order to make it work. So there's a plus and minuses on it. Now, if, if you're looking at them mostly because the deuce and halves out there are all, all old, and they are. The last ones rolled off the assembly line about 1989, and finding one that new is pretty rare. I would look instead at a 900 series 5-ton truck. You're going to have much more readily available parts. Parts are going to be cheaper. Um, there's a lot of the Cummins engines out there that are in these, either the NHC 250 or the uh, 6CTA. Allison transmission will be the same, except none of the transmissions or engines on these are computer-driven. They're old-school, mechanical injection, easy to troubleshoot, easy to repair. Don't have to buy many specialized tools compared to the FMTV. Now, for the one advantage the old M35 Deuce and a Half had over these was that you didn't have to have a CDL or a Class A or B license, even not CDL, to drive a deuce and a half because of the weight. But if you get the deuce and a half version, the two and a half ton version of the FMTV, it has full air brakes, so you will still have to have that Class A or B license. 
So that one advantage is gone. And once that one advantage is gone from, from your decision-making diagram, uh, you're just better off probably for most people looking at the 900 Series 5 tons. They're, uh, they're out there in big supply. Parts are more easily available. They're cheaper. And uh, in my experience, they're actually a pretty good bit more reliable just because they're simpler. There's less to break and less to go wrong, so less does. Uh, you mentioned the government auctions. Uh, don't just limit yourself to looking at government auctions, and let me tell you a few reasons why. Number one, you usually cannot test drive. You're taking their word for their description. Number two, it's more or less an all-sales final. You know, you, you get what you buy. You can go take a look at it if you're close enough and lucky enough. Uh, but, you know, you're buying what you're buying without test driving. Number three, you will not be able to drive that off the lot and drive it home in most cases because they do not issue the paperwork to get a title or registration on the spot, but rather after you've picked it up, you apply for it. And it can be anywhere from I've seen it as fast as two and a half, three weeks, and I've seen it take four to five months to get that paperwork. In between that time, you've got a vehicle that you've paid for that you can't drive. So don't just limit yourself to looking at government auctions because it, what looks like it may be selling cheaper uh, in the long run when you factor all the, the things in of I, I don't get to test drive it, I may have to do more repairs, I'm probably going to have to pay somebody to haul it off because I, don't, I won't be able to get to tag and drive it home. There's not as much money to be saved at them as you look like. So look on Craigslist. You can actually find a lot of the old military trucks on Craigslist. Look online and look at all the other sources. And uh, feel free to contact me directly. Uh, you can get my email off the website at oldgrouch.com if you have any more questions or if anybody else has any questions about any of these military trucks because I'd love to help you. Thanks for the great question. And, and as always, Jack, thanks for the great podcast. This is Tim Glass with Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Hoping everybody has a great day. Um, of course, Tim uh, spent, I think, 30 years almost total in military service, uh, active duty and, and guard combined, and is 63 Whiskey, which is basically a mechanic, and uh, he's uh, an expert on this stuff to a level that, that I'm not, especially with some of these newer vehicles that I've never worked on. But I was a mechanic in the military during my time in service back in the uh, early 90s, late 80s. And I want to add one little bit to this based on that. When I uh, was in the military during that time, we decided it, or I didn't decide, we nothing. The United States military decided it was time to get rid of the cut Vs, the CUCVs, uh, the 1008s, 1009s, that type of thing, and replace them with Humvees. And one of my big jobs, even though I was supposed to work on larger trucks, it was like all hands thing, was to get all of the cut Vs uh, ready to return. Like they had to be perfect if you want to call it that uh, so anything that we could fix at our level of maintenance was supposed to be fixed before they could be turned in and we take them to turn them in they would get an inspection they'd kick them back and say no you got to do this 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 and this let me tell you I would love to tell you we were high driving hard charging you know high and tight military types that made sure those vehicles were perfect they were turds they were really, they were rode hard and put away wet for a lot of years. They were beaten. Military vehicles get beaten. You can only spit shine a turd so much, right? That's something that anybody that's, you know, spent time in the military knows that term, right? Um, so 
with that, we did the very best we could. We did the very best we could to get them to the point where they were in great shape the first time around. When it came to just getting rid of them, as deadlines came up, whatever was good enough to get it past the inspector and onto a ship and out of our sight was fine. From there, they went to guard and reserve units stateside, where they were rode hard and put up wet for another period of time, and a similar process would occur toward their end of life for their last mission, and then they end up on one of these clearinghouses. Okay? I'm just saying all that kind of crap happens to every piece of military equipment. Uh, this is, it's good stuff, but the, but the military, the Army, the Marine Corps, the Air Force, whatever it said, it's done with its life for us. So there's a lot of great stuff there, but I'd be really hard pressed to buy any vehicle like that without driving it. Without at least being able to start it, put it in gear, drive it around a little bit, back it up, check the brakes, pop the hood, look at it, get up underneath it. I would want to do an inspection, not to make sure it's perfect, but to make sure that I'm getting what I'm paying for. Like, what am I going to have to do to fix this? What's that going to cost me? And what does that leave the underlying value of this vehicle in its current state in? And, and making a decision with that. So I would really reiterate Tim's advice to, to really consider trying to buy any military surplus vehicle from a place you can actually touch it, inspect it, drive it first. Moving on from there, next question for our expert council member, Nick Ferguson. This is from Derek in Tennessee. He said, could you give me advice on replacing apple tree varieties affected by cedar apple rust? I planted several apple trees in my food forest before I knew about the effects of cedar apple rust. Should I remove the trees and plant them in another location where I can spray with a safe organic fungicide and plant resistant varieties in their place? B, graft disease-resistant scion wood onto the existing rootstock. And if I do this, do I need to graft below the graft from the previous variety, my preferred choice? Note, I live in an area where removing the cedars is not an option. Uh, I gave him the email if he needed to follow up with the listener as well. I don't think he needed to, but uh, Nick, what say you about worrying worries to do with cedar apple rust? Hey there, I emailed Derek and got some extra info. So you have a couple options. You can treat them and deal with the disease right where they sit or you can get rid of them altogether and replace with resistant cultivars. Here's the thing. You'll always be dealing with this disease, even with resistant cultivars. So as long as you can't eliminate the juniper surrounding your property, all you can do is treat the trees. If you have a particularly susceptible tree, like it sounds like your yellow delicious is, you can cut it down to the ground and um, whip and tongue graft a new scion onto the rootstock. You can try a cleft graft, but... With a tree that's kind of established, you might run into some cracking and splitting. So you might want to try a cleft graft. Um, if if it's sufficiently small enough stock um, that you're not going to split it. Sorry, sufficiently large enough stock that you're not going to split it. But if it's kind of uh, small and easily split, then um, I'd go with a, a whip and tongue. Now, if it doesn't take, you've likely killed that tree, so that's just a risk you're going to have. So, you know, if you're not very experienced or skilled at grafting, then you might want to just yank it out. It's only been in there a year. Um, replacing that tree is going to be, what, 20 bucks? Man, I would probably just yank it out, replace it with something that's very resistant. Now, I would focus on disease mitigation. Clean up all the fallen leaves and disease material from your apples 
and you can somewhat lessen the disease in your area. Look for the cankers on the juniper surrounding your property in the early spring and get rid of them before they can fruit and set spores. Use dormant oil spray in the winter to help cut down on spores and use neem oil at bud break and for a few weeks after that. I'm going to post a list of very resistant cultivars and some resistant cultivars in the comments section of the TSP blog for you. I hope that helps, man. Good luck. Uh, cedar apple rust is a real pain, um, but I hope these little tips are going to help you manage and deal with it. For more information on me and what I do, go to permacultureclassroom.com. Thanks, guys, and have a great weekend. The plot, plant propagation expert himself, Nick Ferguson there. Remember, if you'd like to learn all of these things about plant propagation, Nick has an incredible plant propagation course that is available at permaethos.com. Uh, We added a lot of bonus material to that course as well. Uh, you can get that course anytime. People have asked about, like, when's it coming back? It's available. You can buy the Permaethos uh, plant propagation course or our PDC anytime you want and take either one of those courses in your own time in the comfort of your own home. The plant propagation course will teach you everything you need to know about plant propagation for your own use or to the point where you could be setting up a business in the next couple of weeks and get into a cash flow business with plant propagation. It's one of the easiest home businesses to start. So I throw a little plug in for Nick for his propagation course again at Permaethos. I have a link to where you can sign up for that in the show notes today as well. Last question of the day is for Chef Keith Snow. I held Chef Keith Snow for last so you wouldn't be too hungry listening to the rest of the show for a change. This one you may think, mmm, or you may think, ick, it's going to be up to you. This is from Max. He says, hi, Keith. What is the best way to prepare chicken giblets? Details. I bought a whole chicken for the first time and smoked it on my grill over the holiday weekend. The smoked chicken turned out great, but I didn't know what to do with the bundle of giblets that came in the bird. I kept them, hoping you would have a good technique that I could try out. I had to throw them away. I imagine I'll be buying whole birds more often now that I've tried it. Would like to use all these parts, if possible. Thank you, Keith. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. Max, I want to answer your question about using up the offal or the organ meats from your chickens. Now, this is a great question. Most people just throw this stuff out, but you can certainly um, take those bags out of your chickens, rinse off the organ meats, put them in a little plastic container, zip bag, what have you, into the freezer they go. Now, when you have about a pound stored up, it's probably going to take you, I would say, three to four birds worth to get about a pound, you can make a really terrific pate. Now, you go to France, you're going to see stores all over the place that have an assortment of these beautiful pâtés, or this is uh, what they call charcuterie, and this is the art of working with different meats and pureeing and processing and chilling and cooking and all this. Oftentimes, almost every time, you'll find organ meats in there, and that adds texture and flavor, and it's also um, a frugality issue, so you don't have to throw these things out. Now, um, what you want to do is um, defrost all of those organ meats that you've been saving up and chop them up and reserve them. So on your countertop, you've got your your uh, organs that have been um, cleaned chopped up and set aside. Now, you're going to make this pate. It's quite simple. You'll take a pot, um, like a Dutch oven, over a low to medium heat. You're going to take chicken skin. So when you 
you know, you're doing these chickens, reserve some skin, take the skin off of a leg, off the top of the breast, whatever it might be, chop it up. You want about a cup of this chopped up chicken skin. So you'll throw that into the pot. You want to render it. That means to cook it and release the fat from the skin. Once you see some liquidy fat in the bottom of the pot, you'll take the skin out. Add in two tablespoons of good butter. I'm not talking about great value butter from Walmart. I'm talking about something like a Kerrygold, a grass-fed butter. In that, your butter and your chicken fat mixture, you're going to put in one shallot that's been finely minced, one clove of garlic that's been finely minced. Um, sweat those out, just stirring for about a minute or so until they soften up a bit. And in go about a cup or a cup and a half of diced up mushrooms. I would prefer shiitakes, which are kind of flat-looking mushrooms, or um, a portobello mushroom cap. If you use a porto, just um, stem it and take a spoon and remove the gills underneath, the black stuff. Just scrape it right off, dice it up, toss that into the shallots and garlic and fat mixture, season it with salt and white pepper, a good pinch of each, and stir this until these mushrooms start to show a little bit of color. Once they do, start to show a little color, two tablespoons of cognac or good dry white wine that's purchased from a liquor store, not supermarket. Well, supermarket in the wine section is fine, not the cooking wine that you'll find in the condiment section. That's garbage. So you'll toss in your liquor, and then you're going to put in the – and you stir that just for a minute to reduce out some of the alcohol. Then you'll put in your um, reserved organ meats, one quarter cup of organic heavy cream, and cover this, turn the heat down a bit, give it around 25 minutes covered, open it up, and toss in a teeny pinch of pumpkin pie spice. Now, make sure that you put this into your palm of your hand and then put it into the pot. Do not try to um, shake this pumpkin pie spice directly into into your dish because you'll ruin it. So just a teeny, teeny, teeny little pinch of that. And then um, your fresh thyme. That goes in there, about a tablespoon of fresh thyme. So what you want to do is look at this consistency. You don't want it to be soup, and you don't want it to be too dry. It should be somewhere in between. If it looks a little soupy, just cook it with the cover off for a few more minutes to reduce it out. You need moisture in there, but not too much and not too little. Once you've reached that point, and you're going to use your judgment on that, you pour the contents onto a sheet tray with sides so it doesn't spill all over the place. Let it sit out on the counter uh, for about 15 or 20 minutes to start to cool off, then put it into the refrigerator. Leave it a good hour until this stuff is completely chilled down. Then you're going to place it into a food processor and pulse it together. You want a, a very smooth mixture. Taste it at this point. If it doesn't have enough seasoning, add a little bit more of salt, a little more salt and white pepper. And then you can start putting a little bit, you, you want to test the consistency. It should be rich and silky and have a, you know, smooth mouthfeel. If it tastes a little dry, you're going to want to add just a little bit more of that butter into it until you have a very smooth mixture. Now you've got a really great, um, chicken, you know, a, a pate basically is what it is. And you've used your organ meats. Now, once you graduate from this simple one, you can start to experiment with other pâtés that use more meat. So you can use pork shoulders, a very famous one. Um, you can use 
other parts of your chicken. You know, the dark meat from the chicken is, you wouldn't want to use the breast, but the dark leg meat um, is really great here. And you can make these wonderful terrines and pâtés. I mean, you can't take a better thing on a picnic than a little um, small little mason jar filled with this type of pâté, a baguette, um, your wife or girlfriend, uh, a little bit of wine. Some pickles and Dijon mustard. It's all, it's all heaven. So Max, I hope that gives you some idea on how to use these. And, uh, I'm going to post a recipe up at harvesteating.com for those of you that want to go and print it off. And, uh, wanted to also mention, like I've done in the past about my pasta sauces, folks. I appreciate all of you TS peers who've emailed for the coupon. And that's Keith at harvesteating.com. The sauces are actually in production August 6th is the day. We missed our last production date. We weren't ready with packaging. So August 6th is when they're going to be made. They should arrive at the Amazon.com warehouse, hopefully by August 10th, at which point you're, you'll be able to use the coupon and place an order. There'll be three flavors, roasted red pepper, um, the sun-dried tomato with rosemary, and the creamy basil pesto. And that is a... Uh, an awesome flavor. They're all really terrific, and I greatly appreciate everybody's support in um, giving these a try on Amazon and uh, hopefully leaving me a review after you've tasted the product would be greatly appreciated. So that's it. I uh, hope everybody is enjoying their summer. Uh, not too hot. Maybe getting some swimming in, some great cooking. If anybody has any questions, email me, Keith at HarvestEating.com. Don't forget about the Harvest Eating Podcast. Thank you all for tuning in jack thanks for what you do and welcome back jack hope you had a great vacation man take care everybody and we'll check you out next friday we've rounded out another one but we're not done yet because i have to chime in on this subject too because i have my own thoughts on this i'm not a big pate guy though i might try it because it sounds pretty damn good uh before i get there though i want to just say i'm glad to hear an announcement date for the date the sauces are going to be available again so and i mean this in the most kind way i can to my loving wife so she will shut her sauce hole I have heard over and over and over, when are we going to be able to get Keith's sauce again? Oh, my God. It's coming, honey. So August 6th, I will be ordering some pasta sauce so that I don't have to hear it anymore. And that just speaks to how good his sauces are. But on the organ meats, I want to talk about some other things you can do. Um, I've never been a huge fan of gizzard. It's It's tough. What I usually do with gizzards, what I usually do, Let's just go in total. When I have whole chicken, whether it's from uh, the market, whether it's from a local producer, from my own birds, whatever, I have a whole bird, and I have, like, the extras. So here's how I define the extras. Wing tips are an extra. There's no food value in a, you know, if you cook a chicken wing with the wing tip on, nothing changes. You have this little crusty thing you can break off and give the dog. So I always, whether I part the chicken out or even cook the chicken whole, I cut the wing tips off, they go to the side. The wing tips and the neck are part of one category of extra chicken stuff for me. Then there's liver and with the I'm sorry, with the wing tips and the neck also goes the gizzards. Okay? This is my broth material. So I put all that in one thing. Livers I generally put in another batch. And I save them, right? I have bags of this stuff, and I, I keep it in the deep freezer, and that way I get enough to do what I really want to do. And then hearts, okay? And I have those three categories. Now, the livers and the hearts can certainly go into 
of the broth batch. And if I'm, you know, I'm making chicken soup and I have one or two chickens I'm using, I might just throw it all in. But in general, that's how I divide it up. When I want to make broth, I pull out my broth uh, thing. And what I usually do, same, like I do with a lot of other things, I flash freeze stuff. So I take a, like a cookie tray and I spread out all of the stuff on a cookie tray and I put it in the freezer for like 30 minutes and then I put it in the bag. That way it's not this big massive clump, right? Even the livers are, you can take out a, a few or a lot or the whole thing. The chicken wing tips are all separate. You can just kind of crumble them like a bag of ice and you can get it out in pieces, so to speak, right? So I have that. So I take out my broth and I take as much stuff as I need for my broth from that and I into my broth and I make broth. Or I might make a big vat of broth. I put the whole bag of stuff in there. The wingtips have all this gelatinous stuff going on with the cartilage, and they thicken the broth. And, you know, the flavor, like, I don't really like uh, gizzards very much, but when you, when you simmer it in the, in, the, in the broth, it gives a great flavor, and it softens up enough that you can cut those up and give them to the dogs. And so that's my broth bag. Now I have my livers. My big thing I like to do with livers, I don't care if they're chicken liver, I don't care what kind of liver it is. I have a bag of liver. And when I make sausage, I'll throw the liver in the grinder, Frozen, straight in the grinder, grind, mixed straight in. Liver does amazing things for sausage. And to personally, for me, it's the best way to use it. So all the leftovers, the chicken neck, the, the wingtip, all of that, is, is cooked so long that it's soft, you just give it to the dogs. The liver goes into the, uh, the sausage-making kit, so to speak. Uh, we did that when we made sausage out of the, the, the pigs up at, at, at Perma Ethos. We took the liver, we cut it up right into the grinder. And that sausage was some of the best sausage people ever ate. Uh, again, I just think that liver, the bloodiness, the mineraliness, the flavor, just beautiful in sausages. Uh, and you're talking a small portion whole, maybe 5% of the total is, is liver. Uh, otherwise, you're into like a liver worse type of thing. So you wouldn't really know it's there unless you knew that it was there and you know what you're looking for. But it definitely bangs the flavor up a bit for you. Uh, and I'll use like chicken livers in a pork sausage or a beef sausage. It doesn't doesn't phase me a bit to do that to get that character to it. Then I have the hearts. To me, hearts are something special, and I'm going to tell you how I do hearts. And you can do this with chicken hearts, duck hearts, goose hearts, cut up pieces of beef heart, deer heart, pork heart, any heart you can do this with. Bigger hearts, you want to cut them in, in pieces like strip steak, like think of like pepper steak. Cut them like the ventricles and tendons and stuff off so you have a nice clean piece of meat. With poultry hearts, you can either leave them whole for small hearts, like most chicken hearts. Uh, I always save dove hearts, uh, quail hearts, things like that. As you get a bigger hearts like turkey, like goose, ducks have pretty big hearts, just cut them in half. That, that's all you do. Okay, this is the way that I do hearts every single time, and it's just beautiful. Take two or three cloves of garlic, smash them with the knife, pull the, the little peely thing off of them, and chop them up. About a half of an onion, depending on how much you're making. And then clarified butter, also known as ghee, into your cast iron skillet. Bring the temperature up gently. Add your garlic and onions. You could also use uh, bacon grease for this. But don't use olive oil for this. It, 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 it's too hot of a temperature to cook something like this at. So I would either use baking grease uh, or clarified butter or maybe maybe coconut oil or palm oil. But my favorite would be, uh, again, um, clarified butter or ghee. Light temperature, bring that up. You want to saute the onions. You want to sweat them out. You do not want the garlic burning. Like if you get to where your garlic's turning darker colors, it's, it's too high a temperature too fast. 
cook the garlic and onion into the, the, the butter. So you're making a garlic onion butter is what you're making here. You have your heart set out to the side, drained on a paper towel so they're not all bloody, nice and dry, lay them out, hit them with salt and pepper. Okay? Just that's all you need, salt and pepper. Once you have your onions nice and soft, okay, you're going to put your heart pieces in and start sauteing them. The other thing you're going to want is uh, mushrooms. I don't care what kind of mushroom. Shiitakes are great for this. Those cut up into bite-sized pieces, about the same size as the heart, a little bit bigger because the mushrooms are going to shrink down some. But you're going to start sauteing your hearts, moving them around. And when they're, you don't, everybody freaks out when you cook organ meats. If you overcook heart, it turns into like meat-flavored bubble gum. So you're going to cook them till they're about halfway done and then throw your mushrooms in. The reason you're going to do that is if you cook the mushrooms first or with the hearts all the time, you're going to cook your mushrooms down to where they're too soft and too overcooked. If you like them that way, you can put them in at the same time. I like to put them in toward the end. So I'm only cooking the mushrooms for about two, two and a half minutes. I'm probably going to cook like poultry hearts, like chicken hearts, for about five to six minutes total in a good hot skillet. Right. So I've slowly brought that temperature up. I've got the onions and garlic going. And when I throw the hearts in, I'll bring the temperature up. Because now with more in the skillet, I won't end up burning my garlic and onions. Uh, so I'm going to do that. Then go in the mushrooms. Things are going to start to get a little bit sticky in the pan. Okay. You get out a bottle of red wine. And hit the skillet with red wine and deglaze the skillet with the red wine. Okay? Uh, enough wine to clean the bottom of the skillet to get it off. Use your spatula, scrape the bottom of the skillet, get it, toss it together. Get it out of the skillet. Well, you, so you want to reduce the red wine by about 70% of what you've put in there. So there's still some red wine mixed with all those things that are stuck to the bottom of the skillet uh, for your sauce. Get that out of the skillet onto a plate. If you're not sure if the hearts are done, you know you can take one out, test it, but do not overcook them. Do not make them tough. They should not be rubbery. They should be really tender. And serve that as your main meat dish with whatever else you want to. It is blow you away phenomenal, and it's so stupid simple. Don't ask for a recipe. I just gave it to you. It's basically butter. Clarified butter works better, though. It's not going to burn on you or stick on you. So ghee or clarified butter into the into the pan. Slowly bring up the temperature. Onions and garlic. Cook them down. Get the onions translucent. Hearts go in. Cook the hearts till about half done. Mushrooms go in. Continue to toss them. Red wine deglaze out of the skillet. That's all. You can add a little more salt and pepper at the end if you want to to flavor it. There's a lot of different things you can do there. One of the things I've done lately, we have this new uh, sponsor in the MSB called Olive Basket. Does these infused oils? I said, don't cook it in olive oil. Don't cook it in olive oil. It, it, olive oil is delicate. You don't really want to cook with olive oil. You can really low temperature saute, but olive oil is great at the end. So take your red wine, deglaze your red wine, and you want to heat the oil through a little bit while the pan's still hot. Kill the heat. If it's an electric stove, take it off the burner drizzle some olive oil on it, and then get it out of the pan. There is a, a wild mushroom and sage-infused oil at Olive Basket. That on the hearts is fantastic there at the end. It just gives it this hit of flavor incorporated with the red wine. I, I don't know if you've ever tried heart before, but it's like what I call the entry-level organ meat. 
okay? Because a kidney is a pee filter. A liver is a poison filter, right? They are true organs. Um, a lot of the other organ meats are like these, like, like these filtering mediums. They have this different weird texture to them that we're maybe not accustomed to. A heart is a muscle. A heart is not really an organ the way we think of organs. It's not like a brain that's all like this fatty, gooey stuff, right? It's not like a liver that's this like kind of weird texture thing going on. It tastes like regular meat because that's what it is. It's just an organ that gets used 24-7, 365 by the animal. So it can get tough really, really fast if it's overcooked. But if you try that, I'll tell you what will happen. If you're a deer hunter and you usually take a heart shot, you'll start shooting a daggone deer in the head so you don't ruin the heart. It, it is that good. So if Keith didn't make you hungry enough, hopefully I did. Hopefully you'll give uh, these organ meats a shot. Again, I prefer to throw my liver right in with sausage, uh, but the pate sounds like a good idea. Other than that, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Uh, these Friday shows have seemed to be a really big hit. I don't know anybody else in the podcasting world that is bringing to you this uh, diverse of a group of true experts in their trade. All these different things you can do to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Right here at the Survival Podcast. And I'd like to send out today a thank you to all the members of our expert council. And I'd just like to point out you know, that these guys really make time every week. To, uh, to get these questions answered for you guys. And it, it, we are all blessed uh, to have such an amazing group of people who are willing to contribute their time and their talent uh, to something like these weekly shows. If you think about it, in essence, it's now like each one of these individuals have their own little podcast every week. I mean, there's a lot of podcasters. They put out a 10 to 15 minute maximum podcast once a week. These guys are putting out, you know, it's six to five, six to ten minutes every week for you guys on a very specific subject, all formatted together. And uh, you know, I think it'd be really cool if you guys uh, would come by and comment in today's episode again, sixteen eleven, and, and just just send out a thank you to to the expert council in the comment section. It might be great for them to see how many of you guys really do appreciate what they do. I know I'd appreciate it if you would uh, consider doing that for them this week. And anyway, with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Nobody up there cares They're living for today Yeah.